be called conventional. Forces which are growing in number and importance and significance. For we now know that it is wholly misleading to call this the nuclear age or to say that our security rests only on the doctrine of massive retaliation. Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversive, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it and these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade if freedom is to be saved. A whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. Hello everyone, this is Jose Herrera with the O3XX series and O3XX series lab. And with me, my hermano and co-host, Tyler Pollock. While our mission focuses on the future of mental health and narrative mediation, we wanted to add further context to the security and operational environment that now envelops us all. Since 2001, over 120,000 of our fellow veterans have completed suicide. And in recent years, new evidence reveals that this number is largely underreported. Recent publications by the American Warrior Partnership's Operation Deep Dive reveal a 2.4% increase in suicides reported. Rather than 17 veteran suicides a day, it's 44. Traditional methods and data aggregation do not portray an accurate narrative of why veterans and citizens are completing suicide nor do they account for influence operations, transnational criminal organizations, and their collusion with nation-states to disrupt a decaying rules-based order. We as veterans and countrymen and women are found in the same battle space, the metamodern battle space that entails the collapse of temporal limits, the overcoming of spatial projection, and the incapacitation of epigenomic institutional mimetic viability by the use of kinetic 
and non-kinetic systems. The line between combatants and non-combatants is no more. As my mentor and good friend Dr. Pasulka states, we are all in this together, and together is our way forward. Today's episode features two special guests, Nate Bakker, former Marine and former soldier, and Patrick Ryan, an AI conflict specialist. Without further ado, here's our lab. So I met Nate about, what, maybe two years ago, around, digitally? Gosh, uh, two years, maybe longer than that. Um, yeah. I think it was actually summer of 2020. Was it? Damn. I yeah, think it two was. two and a half years ago. Yeah, that was, Jesus. Right that in the middle of like COVID? Right, yeah, right after it started. Uh, we had oh, a, yeah, a, after it started. We had a mutual acquaintance introduce us. Yeah, we. I was. Um, I was hoping um, Pat would be in, but nonetheless, I would. I would like to hear his thoughts. But no, um, essentially trying to tackle the suicide issue. Right. Um, the more we tapped into it, or at least the more I tapped into it, the more it seemed like there was a, a deliberate um, framework, like this kind of like deliberate framework to specifically target. Um, demographics that were either one on the cusp or had some type of impact on the democratic foundations. Um, seemingly veterans are one of those demographics that tap into the political, but the sociopolitical spectrum, right? You're able to sway human weather or you're able to undermine those individuals. And then you're able to essentially impact the way politics works. And I think it was around that same time too, that I started uh, looking into um, some of the more not visible media coverage, and it led me to uh, Christopher Goldsmith, who ran the uh, VVA report 191. Um, and that basically looked at how service members, their family members, veterans were being targeted by Russian sock puppets um, across YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and then other channels. And essentially, they lured in hundreds and thousands of those demographics, fed them propaganda and memes. And then the interesting correlation between that was around 2017, 2018, there was a, an increase in suicides, um, not only in the active duty component, but also the veteran component. And it also was compatible with that 30% increase from 2000 to 2001 to, to 2018. Uh, and all across the United States, actually globally, there was a massive influence operation taking place. And why is that important? It's important because we know that if you're able to tap into the brain structures, you're able to tap into the biology of human beings, you're able to dump them with a whole host of biochemical processes. And then you compound that with pre-existing issues, then you're able to essentially manipulate them or modify their behavior to react into certain ways. And... I think essentially what we see today is the outcome of that impact. Um, interesting times, um, especially this past weekend with the whole um, Tyree Nichols thing and how the media was portraying that in terms of either one, attempting to inoculate people or aggravate people. And, you know, there's that fancy word, conspiracy, right? 
Um, why, why are they doing that? Why are they saying those things? Um, it's not healthy. Uh, it's 2023. We've seen the impacts of how information um, impacts the body, impacts people. We know the effects of what we would call trauma porn, right? Uh, so, so why move in a direction to essentially disrupt or potentially create this kind of tension or friction within populations, specifically demographics that already have a, an overload or are an allostatic load? And I think, you know, part of that is just the mechanism of the economy, right? They need ad click revenue. So part of it is, is surviving. Um, a lot of it is, I got to do my job. So my boss tells me to look into the store. So I'm going to look into the store and we've got to report on it. And then maybe it is some type of modification. Um, it seems odd. It seems, you know, very, very sophisticated, but it can be done now. Um, maybe that's what we'll talk about. So nonetheless, you know, the veterans, right? So these are my people. These are our people. Um, it's important um, trying to get down to the heart of things. Why are my friends killing themselves, right? Why are people mm -hmm. killing themselves? Um, more importantly, why is it that every year the mental illness number increases? We're at 52.9 million. Uh, the, the potential for mental health illness is even greater now that we have newer technologies. Um, we're transferring fully into this automated system of fifth and sixth gen networks capability. Uh, how do we navigate that? And I think more importantly is how do we how do we trust a system when a rules based order is deconstructing as a result of uh, former uh, state players now coming to the forum and saying we want a piece of the pie? Like I, I mean, essentially that's kind of what's happening, and, and it's difficult to like get out of that white noise or that residue, trying to figure out what's manufactured, what's not manufactured. How should I interpret technology? Like, is this technology good for me? Is it good for us? Nonetheless, um, Nate, if you want to go ahead and hop in and just say some general remarks, and then we'll go ahead and just tap into maybe just a secured and operational environment or a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're, the pattern that you're picking out and, and bringing up, and this is kind of, I mean, you're, 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 process is very similar to mine um, as far as, hey, there's something going on here. Let me dig into this. Uh, you end up spending a lot of time in reflection on what exactly you're seeing before you start saying, okay, this pattern connect or this part connects to this, this part connects to this, and you start drawing a, a clearer picture. So going back to, uh, you know, leading with rise in suicides, especially among the veteran population. Um, I think at this point, uh, you know, we spent 20 years between Afghanistan and Iraq, plus ongoing operations in Somalia, Sudan. Uh, you know, we we had we had people all over the world. I think the only people that we didn't have, or the only places we didn't have people, were on the ground in China. So, it's when you start picking up. Um, something like that, where, where you've got a rise in trend in, in death. I mean, just from like a, a standard, uh, you know, your safety officer perspective, oh, why does this keep happening? Um, and then you start to look at what is what is feeding into that, because, you know, at first it seems it's affecting like guys that may, you know, maybe maybe they seemed a little unstable or they'd been through a huge amount of trauma. You know, they had the the back to back to back deployments. Um, you know, there there's 
a ton of different uh, contributing factors early on. But then as time goes on, you start seeing guys that that were solid uh, that, you know, and and everybody talks about the suicide part of it is, you know, oh, you know, it's a it's a shame. They must have had something going on in the background, um, you know, that they didn't want to talk about or something like that. And I think at this point we've all lost, you know, both ends of the spectrum on that. You know, we've we've seen the guys that it was kind of like, yeah, you know, we saw the alcoholism get out of control, uh, stuff like that. But then you have guys that were, you know, sober. Um, they, you know, they had families that they were active in their churches. They were active in all these places. They were living their lives. And then, bam, out of nowhere, gone. <clears throat> and, um, you know, that, 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 one, that one actually, that part of it is what really hit close to home for me. I've lost, uh, from one unit we had... Or well, out of out of the people that I was stationed with uh, when I was on active duty, I think I've lost eleven to suicide. Um, and then we had uh, my platoon sergeant when I was with the reserves. Um, we lost him to suicide right after COVID started, and and that was probably the biggest shock because if he was. <sighs> He, he was not somebody that you would identify as at risk. Yes, he had deployments. Yes, he had that stuff. But he also had um, incredibly strong family connections. Uh, you know, for religious reasons, this would have been unthinkable. So there's a lot to it that, you know, especially with that, that really raised some questions as far as what's going on. And right about that point in time, I had started digging into, um, I guess, more of a... Uh, I was already looking at critical infrastructure, critical infrastructure protection, uh, based off of what I had done uh, my last couple of years on active duty and with the reserves. Um, we were the the we provided uh, backup power for uh, emergency, like natural disasters, uh, federal emergencies, stuff like that. Uh, we were a Corps of Engineers asset, um, and when I left active duty and went to work with the reserves, I started working uh, for an equipment manufacturer and <clears throat> wanted to uh, looking at some of the, some of the technology that was being released for safety systems uh, that, that was being installed in data centers, things like that. Um, they, they were, you're, they, we were seeing equipment manufacturers integrating stuff like Bluetooth into main breakers for trip units which, you know, just to just like a, a five second uh, advertisement on why that's a horrible idea. Um, your trip unit is what identifies if your breaker is doing something that it shouldn't be. It's got, you know, all your all your uh, sensor transformers are wired into the trip unit. It will tell you if it sees a spike in voltage, if it sees a drop in voltage. So you get, you know, over voltage, under voltage, uh, overcurrent, undercurrent protection, things like that. Then the, the big one that you really want to pay attention to in electrical safety is your ground faults um, because that means you're, you're dumping electricity literally into the ground uh, and your grounding system is there for safety reasons. So if your ground system gets damaged, you don't have the safety that you think you do. And, you know, electrical, you don't get to see the electrons moving. Um, so you, you assume that everything is worst case scenario. Uh, and, I realized when I was seeing, so the, the trip unit doesn't actually do anything other than cause the main breaker to trip when it sees a fault. Uh, 
And when you've got a Bluetooth sensor that's added into that so that your facilities engineer can monitor while he's walking around the facility, you know, see the SCADA system, see the alarms, things like that. Um, and I was like, okay, Bluetooth isn't, isn't like a super secure platform. Like it, there's maybe some encryption, but it's not hard to hack Bluetooth. Um, and the question that I had was if, and this is what most people don't realize. So Bluetooth is regulated to 25 feet. Um, you know, the, I think, I think now they're using it for like the RFID tags, stuff like that. So Bluetooth, you can, I think 300 feet is like the max distance for Bluetooth communications. Um, but like any radio signal, if I wanted to broadcast something from 50 miles away, all I need to do is change the size of the antenna and amplify the signal, but I can jump on the Bluetooth signal from 50 miles away. So now you've got, you know, this technology that everybody's like, oh, this is so convenient. And I'm like, this is the worst case scenario for hacking a system directly, mm. because if I can go in and convince that trip unit that I can set it into a ground fault, what is your facilities engineer going to do? They're going to, they're going to go and chase a ground fault. It's, I mean, and when you're talking like substations, they have to disconnect cables. They have to, they have to verify that everything's turned off that, you know, if they go start digging up this, this cable system that, you know, they're not going to expose something that's, you know, got, got electricity running through it, still running into the ground. Um, that's a, that's almost a week long process. If you've ever seen like the emergency <laughs> electrical crews, when you have a ground fault, they have to not only verify at each step that something is safe and de-energized, but they're going to have to unland all those cables. And I mean, you're talking about untorquing, um, you know, what goes into actually installing that switch gear is, is pretty phenomenal. So it's not just like, I'm going to go unplug this thing in because it's smoking. It's I've got to go and disconnect all the switch gear and each step I have to make sure that it's safe so that nobody gets hurt. You know, these, these are, these are procedures that are not just uh, industry standard, but they're part of like state law around electrical work. They're part of federal law around electrical work. And, you know, and OSHA gets tied into it. Um, you know, so there's all of that on top of it. So it's like a three week process from the time that you get in there, you get everything unlanded, you find out that it's not a ground fault. And now you're like, what the hell? And so you step everything back and you reland it. And at the same time, you haven't solved that problem. So again, all those safety steps are right there alongside with you landing everything back on. You turn it on and it goes back into ground fault. And now you're looking at it like, what is going on here? So maybe it's the, maybe it's the trip unit. Um, you know, so, so there's all that. Meanwhile, nobody thinks to look, okay, was this a cyber attack? Because nobody think, no, everybody thinks cyber attack is going after somebody's social security number or somebody's, uh, um, you know, personal information, their credit card, uh, you know, the, the OPM database, things like that, all this stuff that's been attributed to cyber attacks. Everybody thinks it's about people. Um, if you really want to do some damage, your cyber attacks are going to occur against your industrial equipment, things that are life support related. So instead of disrupting, you know, five, 10, 20 people by stealing their credit card information, you're talking about the entire city that relies on a water wastewater treatment plant where you're talking about a government service that like the FAA stuff that runs on a, a in a data center, um, you know, and, and then there's worst cases scenario from there. Um, 
so there's a, there's a lot that goes into uh, when you when you start looking at things like that and you realize, oh, my God, this is actually horrible. So going back to the, the suicide thing, the question that I asked, and this is you'll not find this anywhere in any of the uh, federal language for the federal agencies that are responsible for protecting critical infrastructure, especially, uh, you know, CISA has the model for securing against cyber, uh, things like that, and then how that layers over everything to do with wastewater treatment plants, uh, water supply, transportation, logistics, all those areas. I think there's 17 areas of critical infrastructure, including elections. Um, so there's actually a federal mandate to oversee the security of elections. And the question that nobody asks is what's actually being targeted? Well, you target those systems so that you can gain access to large population centers. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a couple examples of that give you an idea of what that process looks like. Um, I think the one that's probably been taken apart the most uh, and really understood was when the Massachusetts uh, grid went down, that was a cyber attack. Uh, and it was a three-year process that started in Washington state. And over three years, they were able to gain access by, and, and it started with a phishing scam. Um, they had literally sent an email to a contractor at the state level who did not know any better. Uh, you know, a lot of these state contractors, there's no requirement that they go through some sort of cybersecurity training. Probably some old electrician that had an email system clicked on the link. And from there, you had a three-year countdown that they were able to gain level levels of access higher and higher and larger and larger systems. Um, and in three years, they were able to actually hack and take down Massachusetts state grid. <clears throat> Damn. And that's, and, and you look at that and you're like, okay, so the entry point was people and the target, I mean, you're, you don't just take down the electrical grid in a state just for amusement. You do that because you want to disrupt the, the population center. You know, anything, anything that you're doing, and this is, this is probably where we need to wake up the most is anything that's being done uh, to target a population center. That's a warfare tactic. And it's, it's unfair to call it anything other than a warfare tactic because people need to realize that they're being they're being used they're being leveraged they're being manipulated you know it's it's not just the the uh corporations doing this uh for you know for for commercial reasons you know it's not that this isn't a commerce platform anymore this is somebody weaponized the commerce platform or it started as a weaponized platform and then somebody was like hey you know we can make a few extra bucks if we sell this as ad space um so those tactics to uh, this, and this is really where I, I fell into the deep end of the pond was when I started looking at, okay, so social engineering, um, I think the, I can't remember what, which it, it's been, it's been years since I've read the initial stuff on this. Um, for cybersecurity, I think it, at that point in time, it was like between 62 and 72% of cyber attacks begin with social engineering. That right there, that that tells you everything that you need to know about your systems when when 70, you know, let, let's say on the low end, 62 percent of those attacks, um, they occur because I was able to send you an email or uh, 
sat next to you in a coffee shop and struck up conversation while I was, you know, vacuuming the data off your computer because you hadn't secured your Wi-Fi password. Um, you know, and you look at that from from an amateur perspective, everybody, you know, what do we associate hackers with? The old uh, 90s movie Hackers or Sneakers or any of the any of the movies that came out in like the, the Swordfish. 90s. Yeah, I mean, uh, go back, go all the way back to war games. It's some computer nerd sitting down at a terminal. Um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I just, I think I actually just dated myself, maybe. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not as, I'm not as young as I look. <laughs> I mean, you look great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Semper bye. <laughs> yes, Semper no, I think, you're, yeah, that I just recently read, um, I think it's like dated 2019, 2020, that 80% of most cyber attacks were um, as a result of human error. So it's still the same. <clears throat> Which, yeah, I don't it, know. No, it, has, it hasn't even changed remotely because because they look at that. Uh, how exactly how exactly do you begin the conversation of, I mean, the military military actually put in a really good effort against this. We had cybersecurity training that we had to do annually. We had, you know, all the the more advanced stuff that the, uh, you know, your your uh, communications people on post would make you go through sit through the training if you had to access, you know, higher level systems like you know Zipper or something like that. You had to go through training to to use those terminals, um, and a lot of the focus was you know, it, it was pretty basic level stuff. Like what, what, what the military knows about red teaming. Now we look at that and we say, okay, red teaming cyber looks a little bit different than red teaming anything else. Um, you know, what, what, what do you, what do you call What do you, what do we call red teaming in the military? It's op four. Uh, when you say, when you use a term like that, all of a sudden you're like, Oh, op four. That's when you spend three weeks in the field, getting to wear civilian clothes and, antagonizing the hell out of your sister unit just because they you know they were they were pissy at the bar or something like that it's it's a it's a great way to to get back at a, a sister unit or or something like that to get a chance to go play op four against them um and i've gotten to do that a couple of times uh but then you start thinking about it in those military terms you know so if this is if this is warfare uh, maybe we should, instead of calling it red teaming, uh, maybe we should change it to op four so that people aren't looking at those two different words and saying, oh, well, this one's warfare, but this one is just some computer punk. Uh, you look at the number of dedicated, um, we'll, call, we'll call them signals intelligence, because that's technically that's what it fell under up until I think like I think they changed the language around it in 2008, 2009 timeframe. Uh, then we actually had cyber warfare. Um, but it was all signals intelligence. Uh, and again, in the military, you know, I, I was infantry for quite a few years. You were infantry. Um, Tyler, I'm not sure. I, I'm guessing you were probably infantry if you and Jose were stationed together at some point. Um, when, you, when you tell an infantry guy that somebody's going to play out four against you, they're they're going to go fix bayonets. Um, they're they're not going to they're not going to play they're not going to play around and assume that op four is some computer nerd. Uh, they're going to think that okay, this is a guy that's probably just as competent as I am. You know, maybe maybe we have different views over who gets to take girls home from the bar or something like that. But this guy's competent, and you start changing your thinking a little bit. 
and you know, so so when I when I first encountered the whole idea of social engineering around cybersecurity uh, and looking at like what systems were actually attacked, and then realizing that you know if I wanted to opt for something, I'm not going after somebody's social security number. That system's already broke. I'm not going after somebody's credit card. Uh, you know, chances are the slightest downturn in the economy and that credit card is going to be maxed out. So that's not going to give me any good either. What do I want to go after if I want to disrupt the population? I'm going to go after the critical infrastructure. And if you install Bluetooth in your main breakers, sweet Jesus, you just made my job so much easier to antagonize your population. Um, and I can, and 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 the the second order and third order effects of that because this is this is where I really started asking questions that people were I was getting eyebrow raises in you know some of the smart base smart city stuff because at the you know DoD is trying to keep pace with all the smart city stuff that's rolling out where everything's tied together and connected and I'm like uh, y'all realize that this is a, this is a horrible idea right and they're like what are you talking about you know this is we're going to get energy savings out of this and we're going to get, you know, all these, you know, XYZ uh, ESG related uh, talking pieces. We're going to get to check the box on all these different things because we have a smart base now. And I'm sitting there thinking about it from an op four perspective of, okay, so we know that things are broken down by IP addresses. We know that things are broken down by zip codes. Um, there's a pretty good chance that if I want to, uh, let, let's say I wanted to turn off the water supply to any installation that's installed these these breaker systems. Um, all I've got to do is target that zip that demographic uh, that that zip code. Uh, you know, when you, you you know, I'm, I'm probably probably going after a DPW guy initially to gain access. So I know you know I know where you know, and we set all the the map for this is literally out there online. Um, and I've, I've gotten scolded before for, for talking about things and putting things together like this. Um, this is all open source information. I don't have to dig for this actually. Uh, and, and people are more than happy to advertise. LinkedIn is wonderful for this. Everybody lists their job title. Everybody lists where they, where they just got their new job or where they're proud that they've worked for 10, 12 years, you know, or, in some cases, yeah. 22 years, if they're, you know, if they're one of the, the few people that can hold out with an organization for more than three or four years, um, everybody on LinkedIn is absolutely happy to tell you that they work for so-and-so. And so all I got to do is go search LinkedIn for DPW positions. And I look for the one guy that uh, probably, probably semi-active, uh, maybe highly active on social media. That's the dude that's sitting in the in the uh, bathroom at work, playing on his cell phone on LinkedIn, uh, looking for a new job because he's bored. Um, a lot of it, you know, and a lot a lot of that comes down to the fact that he's bored. He's just not engaged at work um, for you know whatever reason. He disengaged a couple years ago and is just you know he, he's out there doing something else. So all I've got to do is insert myself into his sphere of influence. What are we what are we getting into now? We're getting into into, you know, when you start talking about sphere of influence and things like that, um, you're getting into human. Uh, you're getting you're getting into other agency work. Um, and then we know that, you know, and, and just to. Uh, I think in. When I left D.C. in 2020, I think it was one, two two years, 2018, 2019, I was reading a statistic. Oh, we joked about this. Uh, 
because we had, you know, you get your anti-terrorism briefing. Um, and we had a special addendum to our anti-terrorism briefing uh, when I lived at uh, Fort Belfort. Um, and it was just this little comment that Fort or Washington, D.C. has 2,000 known foreign agents, known foreign intelligence agents. And it's like, huh? How are, wait, what? How do you have that many intelligence agents from foreign countries working in your national capital and you haven't done anything about it? Mm. 2,000, that's that's two for every member of Congress. Plus, or, or, or one for every member of Congress and then, you know, probably one for every two people that work at the Pentagon. Because it's all in the same area. And again, all you, you know, everybody's, everybody's advertising what they do on, on, on LinkedIn. Everything, everybody's tweeting about, you know, their, I work for, you know, Senator so-and-so, or I work for, you know, Representative so-and-so, you know, their staffer. I mean, there, there are Twitter feeds of overheard at the bar in D.C., that are absolutely hilarious. If you've ever seen like the, the ones from like San Francisco where it's all the tech workers, go look at the ones from all the policy workers and you get a really, really good picture of the state of our country. Um, but again, going back to, uh, you know, human intelligence and intelligence gathering, those are the people that you want to target. They're, they're not invested. You know, they're, they're mid-level management. They're uh, staffers. They're people who are, you know, getting paid government rate for, doing government rate work um and you start you start looking at that pattern of of how do you how do you target how do you take things apart like that to just let's let's just say it's just an intelligence gathering operation you want to understand where the vulnerability where your flashpoints are um you know so you start looking at the the political differences or areas with you know with high racism um, you know, and, and I'm talking not not the, the political high racism. I'm talking about like actual high racism. Um, and they look a little bit different than than the media advertises them. But the. When you start looking at it from that perspective, you start seeing that there's these connections that you might not have looked for if you thought it was some computer nerd sitting at a terminal. You know, we don't I mean, we think computer nerds are mischievous not malicious uh we have we have a hard time connecting you know the the visual that we have for cybersecurity with the with what the enemy actually has i mean these are people that are absolutely dedicated to a cause um you know and, and if you want to actually if you want a better picture look at the old tiger teams that used to go after the the child porn in the bbc chats um these were mom and pops that that were, I mean, they were absolutely savage because they were invested in it. Um, they wanted to make sure that that this, you know, these groups of people got taken down, uh, you know, because they were they were targeting their kids, things like that. Um, you get a better idea of somebody who's got an invested cause there, and they're and they teach themselves skills over time, uh, you know. And this is, you know, foreign countries are, are doing this. They they have they have military schools that teach this. Uh, I know we've got training that teaches this, but we have a very different perspective on. Uh, cybersecurity, especially when it comes to more adversarial, uh, you know, offensive operations, um, we still have kind of a, a live and let live mentality when it comes to cyber. Of we just don't think like that. We're not we're not trying to take down somebody's civilization at the root. We don't target soft targets, uh, 
and I think part of our part of our uh, every every military lawyer is going to uh, absolutely lose their crap on me for this one. Um, we try and follow the law too closely. Uh, we you know we've got the Geneva Convention. We've got you know all these rules of engagement that we have to make sure we're doing things nicely. So you can't target large population centers. Um, you know, we, we leave stuff like that to, to other agencies that, that can do influence operations. But even that, you know, we're, we're told that, uh, you know, they're pretty, pretty low key. They don't, they don't do things. You know, if you, you're, you're going to, you're going to see more, more investment in influence operations from mining corporation than you are from the CIA. That's how we think, um, you know, because, you know, it's capitalism. That's, that's horrible. You know, the government institutions wouldn't do things like that. Um, so if I know that I can target a population with these tactics for informational purposes, uh, then it's, it, you're a stone's throw from being able to, uh, influence them, you know, onesies and twosies to do something a little bit malicious, but then you realize, and I think for me, it was Cambridge Analytica that really opened my eyes to mass manipulation. Um, and understanding like the ability to uh, to target um, tar target by zip code for political reasons. Uh, you know, er everything's for political reasons. That's how we think. Uh, we, you know, again, we're not. We see this as a as a contest between wills when it comes to philosophy uh you know or, or political viewpoint we're not looking at this as as life and death you know we i'm not going to say it yet we'll, we'll we'll head in that direction here shortly um the so when you can target zip codes of people and you can do it without ever you know you look at their their methodology for uh, how did how did Cambridge Analytica get started? It was uh, some college kid that had this idea of I want to track people's uh, secondary and third order networks um, just by having them fill out a survey online. I'm gonna I'm gonna use an exploit in Facebook uh, that's gonna give me access to their entire network, so I'll be able to see you know if I target somebody because of their political views, I'll be able to see who they're in close communication with. Uh, so I have a pretty good idea now of who, not only who, who they're in close communication with, but somebody that has uh, similar political ideals, you know, and, and I could screen all this manually. This is, this is a thing is everything, everything that I'm talking about here is, is, is being done and has been done manually. We don't think about these in, in terms of automation. And that's, you know, that's the direction that I, I'm taking this is I want to explain like the actual threat scenario. Um, so when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, to targeting these groups of people, there's, there's a ton of different ways to break down these demographics. I mean, this is, uh, your basic GIS system is able to, you know, classify by zip code, uh, everybody's religious preference, everybody's political preference, everybody's, you know, and some of this stuff is, is available in state records or in county records or city records. You know, this is all your, your voting records. You, you might not necessarily see who voted for what, but you're going to get a pretty good demographic breakdown by zip code of, you know, somebody went to the library, library registered as a Republican. Um, okay. So we know that, you know, 
based off of how many people registered in this zip code, we know that this population is predominantly, and you start selecting your targets based off of just population density. So that changes things a little bit. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we're still looking at this uh, geographically broken down by, by area. Uh, so, you know, zip codes are really, really good way to, to do this. Um, and you start to get a picture for when you, when you look at what Cambridge Analytica actually did, uh, they fed specific uh, demographics information uh, that was either going to, you, they wanted, they wanted to prove that they could do one of two things uh, when it actually came down to what they did uh, during the 2016 elections. Um, they wanted to either disrupt people from voting or encourage people to vote. So, so you've got an either or scenario where, you know, you, you might feed one demographic uh, or, or one, you might feed information to one zip code that's going to mobilize them. And you're going to feed information to another zip code that's going to get them to stay home um, in terms of voting, you know, and, and what is, what are we constantly told in regards to our political process that, you know, every vote counts. Uh, so in terms of, of political process, we know that, that, uh, you know, at least ideologically, the majority of people in the United States vote view voting as a, a sacred right as they should. Um, and so if I can run an influence operation to cause somebody to not go vote or to cause somebody to go vote for a different candidate, or to reinforce a candidate that I might be working for, you know, you've got all these different scenarios of, of why you're targeting and how you're targeting, you know, and that's, you know, of course your political agencies are going to, you know, your, your RNC, your DNC, uh, you know, and even some of these independent groups are going to, are going to pay for those services. Absolutely. Uh, it's a sure chance of getting your candidate in. And then, you know, and if, and if that's a, if that's your, your edge in that battle space, then hell yeah, you're going to use it. Um, you know, so so now we know we can target uh, large groups of, of people. Uh, and then right about probably two or three months after I read that, uh, maybe maybe a little bit later than that, uh, Shoshana Zuboff wrote or published her uh, documentary on surveillance capitalism. And that goes into detail on, on uh, manipulating people at the cash register uh, or right before they get to the cash register based off of their location data on their cell phone. Um, you know, and, and, you know, send, send in the, the little alert to your cell phone that says, Hey, the store is having the sale. Uh, you know, the, and, and think, think about those. I mean, these are okay. Sweet. We're now in marketing tactics. This is, we're jumping around, like, like trying to, to trace somebody who's bouncing between different nodes on the internet. This is, this is wild. Um, you know, so now we're all of a sudden in this marketing area, this marketing space of targeting people based off of where they're shopping and, you know, you send an alert to their phone. So fun fact, I worked for a telecom uh, between the time that I was in the Marine Corps and the time that I was in the army, um, spent about two, two and a half years working in network operations for a cellular phone company. And this was right when the E911 platform rolled, first rolled out. So E911 was the backbone of being able to respond to a cell phone's 911 call, not based off of where the phone number was registered, which was where they, you know, that's, that's how 911 would dispatch was based off a of zip code on the or, uh, area code on the phone. Um, so it would, you know, do all that routing uh, electronically. Um, cell phones introduced an entirely new challenge because now your phone number is portable. So 
you you might have a, a you know seven or three area code, um, but you're in a, a you know you're across the country in a three or three area code. Um, how does how does the the emergency services route your your cell phone call to the local where you're at your your proximity? How do they uh, dispatch emergency services for a nine one one call? So the E nine one one platform was the solution to this, and this was you know essentially using cell phone uh, data paired with uh, it would attach the the information off of what tower it was pinging off of, and you know at, at that point in time they were they were proud that uh, they were able to dispatch nine one one I think it was within a kilometer of your location, so they could start searching for you. Now a kilometer in a city is that's like what you're there's no way you're going to find that that 911 call but they were moving that direction and it was federally mandated that all these uh, cellular carriers were going to roll it out and the the company that i worked for was the the first and only one to actually do this and the way the way that they got this implemented is they actually sold it to their shareholders as um this is going to be an advertising platform and they had everything prepped and this is in 2001 2000 2000, 2001 timeframe. Um, so we're already talking about like very, very targeted location-based services uh, that they had every intention of turning into uh, ad revenue. So now they could sell that data to, you know, to anybody, um, you know, anybody that wanted to pay for it. That's, that's your, that's the revenue model. Uh, if somebody wants to buy it, yeah, we'll sell it. Um, you know, so uh, you've got a cellular phone company that just went uh, Lord of War uh, on us. Uh, and they're like, hell, hell yeah, we can, we can sell this, this military grade technology. Cause that's where it came from. Uh, it's, you know, again, the, the, our, our technology that gets rolled out on the civilian side has probably got, uh, between 10 and 30 years of DOD research behind it. They want to make sure that it can't be, can't be weaponized. Uh, and then once they know it can be weaponized, it'll absolutely get sold to the public under a different name because that's where your revenue is. Um, so the E911 platform rolls out. Now, fast forward to, to now where I think the accuracy is down to a meter. Um, you know, so based off of uh, your cell phone and the tower that it's registered off of, it can track you down to a meter uh, within that space. So we're, we're actually doing really good when it comes to really, really good locations-based services, which is great for emergency services. And again, this is, you know, this is all... Uh, tied into um, critical infrastructure protection. Um, so I'm looking, I'm looking back and forth at, you know, what, what I've been working in is critical infrastructure protection. And I'm looking, I'm seeing this documentary about using very targeted uh, locations-based services and I'm already 11 Bravo. So I'm looking at this as, uh, wow, that is, that's phenomenal. Somebody figured out how to make money off of uh, targeting people targeting individuals uh, with psychological manipulation via their cell phone. And then you really dig into it and you start understanding like haptic feedback and you know, what, what information does your cell phone actually send back to its service provider and good luck unpacking that one. Some of that's actually proprietary information that, you know, you're talking at the firmware level where some of that stuff was getting routed. Um, but the, the amount of data that your cell phone transmits, that's not just, uh, a phone call or a text message or the, you know, the, the internet traffic or, or things like that is pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, there's geolocation data, there's, 
the haptic feedback stuff, which is how fast you scroll on your touch screen, how fast you, uh, you know, how, how long of a pause do you have on your touch screen? What are you actually looking at? And all of this got uh, fed into the system where they could, they could essentially monetize behavior patterns by doing very, very targeted advertising. And so now, you, you know, Shoshana Zuboff talks about this. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ryan um, Facebook whistleblower uh, back in, I can't remember what year that was. I want to say that was 2016, 2017 again. Uh, the guy that, that dropped all the documents of Facebook using this process of targeting people's emotions uh, to use that. So, okay. So human psychology, if I show you a hundred sad faces over a 10 minute period, it's going to influence your emotions. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about like a, you know, smiley face emoji, sad face. I'm talking about literal pictures of people, you know, maybe it starts out with somebody looking depressed or just, you know, there's something slightly off about them. And I build up to like images of absolute anguish. Uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be an individual. Like I can, I can show you, uh, feed from war zones, uh, puppies getting abused, things like that. Um, and if I insert enough of those over a short enough period of time, I'm going to influence your emotions. Uh, and I, and I can track all this with haptic feedback. I can see, you know, and if you're, if your cell phone is good enough, the accelerometer data is going to actually monitor your heartbeat. Um, so I can actually tell via your cell phone in your hand when your heart starts to accelerate and when you're starting to get a little anxious and potentially a little depressed, you know, depressed, you're going to start slowing down on your screen. You're just going to pause. And I'm going to know every single time you pause based off of your feed, which images really hit home and end of a hundred images, you're depressed. What do depressed people do? They spend money. That's, I mean, that is the American dream at this point is I'm going to keep you just depressed enough to where you're going to spend money and I'm going to, you know, we're going to extract that last little bit out of you that hasn't been taken out in, in taxes and uh, municipal fees and, and everything else to, you know, that's that's our model for keeping civilization afloat right now is if, if every, so instead of putting your finger in the dam to keep the water out or putting your finger in the side of the, the hole in the side of the boat to keep the water out, uh, we're at the point now where I think we're operating on the idea if we just hold our fingers together in the right pattern, we'll make our own boat. There is no boat. Civiliza civilization is sunk. We just have our fingers together in what looks like a boat. So the water's not getting in. It may get in a little bit, but you know we're doing a pretty good job of keeping it out and staying afloat just by keeping our fingers together in this hole that there used to be a ship of state. Um, so now we start to understand that people can be psychologically manipulated. Uh, pair that with the with the targeting by zip code. So if I wanted to, if I want to make the, an entire zip code sad, um, I don't even, I, you know, I'm, I don't have to feed them political campaigns. I just have to feed them footage of, of the madness going on around the world. Um, you know, so, and, and that was all commercialized. That was, they were selling ad revenue. You, you have a hundred sad faces, then you have an ad. And at the end of, you know, and, and you've got to, and you have a proven way to show that somebody has a higher chance of clicking on that ad and making a purchase because they're sad. You know, they're, they're treating that, that, uh, little bit of, of mental and, uh, soul anguish with, you know, the, the bandaid that they can reach for the fastest. 
which is clicking on that thing and making that purchase. Boom, dopamine hit. Uh, I mean, we we know how this works, and it sounds, uh, you know, if, if we were to talk about this all separately, it's like, yeah, there there might be a problem with that. I mean, you see the the people who are addicted to like Candy Crush and and stuff like that. Um, it's all dopamine hits. Uh, so, except for now, now when you start combining together, you're like, oh, you're targeting people's emotions for that. That's that's kind of crappy. Um, you know, and, and you start piecing all these things together and you're like, wow, this is this is an absolute horrible state of affairs. And then the 11 Bravo steps in the room and says, watch till you I, what, just wait until I weaponize this. Watch what I can do. Um, and so the question that I started asking was, so what if I don't necessarily want somebody to make a purchase? What if I can continue to push that emotional state into directions of despair? Um, what happens when I can push those? emotional states, you know, and, and different patterns are going to evoke different emotions. And we can pick up on all these biometric markers for these emotions. Uh, they all have different signatures when you combine it together, you know, an accelerated heart rate might mean that you're in a hurry, or it might mean that you're anxious, or it might mean that you're angry, or it might mean that you're scared. Um, but if I take heart rate and scrolling activity, or I take you know, and in some cases, you know, if you if you really want to get into the weeds, they can hack the, the camera. And we know that they do that. We know that they're they log. I think it's they log every three seconds or three minutes or something like that. They log a, a snapshot of of the cell phone uh, where the camera's pointing. So that's why you put the little you know, if you if you work anywhere near a, a skiff that you're you know, at this point, I don't even know if people pay attention to whether they can or can't take a cell phone into a skiff. With the amount of data that we have leaking but you know you you put the little cover on your camera because you know somebody can hack that and watch well they are hacking that and they are watching and you know they the information that you can get from just somebody you know setting their their camera down on the table uh or the you know accidentally flashing their camera across the their their desk and they've got, you know, their checkbook out and stuff like that. You know, again, we're still thinking cybersecurity is, you know, keeping your, your credit information safe. Um, you know, I, I, I don't care about somebody's checkbook. I want to see the computer screen of the stuff that they're working on because I know that they're a, a DOD employee, or I know that they work for this federal agency, or I know where they work for this contractor or they work for this defense contractor. Um, you know, so we, we have those breakdowns, you know, I can, I can tell you where, how to get all of that information, just using the, the geolocation services, um, watch their, watch their movement patterns over time. Uh, you find out their place of work, their, their cell phone pings off of this tower. They might not take it into a skiff. Um, they might leave it in the, the locker outside, but they didn't have it in the locker outside the whole way to work. I know where I know exactly where that skiff is now. All of a sudden, their cell phone goes dark for the next eight hours. That's fascinating. I wonder what's happening there. They're somewhere where they don't want that cell phone. Well, that's an area of interest, and this goes back into so now that now there's a, a little bit of uh, overlap here with um, you know the way that that agencies communicate between each other, uh, and this was part of the reason for why CISO was founded in the first place. Um, you have uh, agencies that don't necessarily get the same uh, threat intelligence uh, assessments that other agencies do, you know, DOD, CIA, FBI, they, they, they're the ones that generate threat assessments. Um, the FAA, outside of looking for, for uh, you know, Saudis going to flight school, 
Um, the FAA probably doesn't have much jurisdiction over uh, what we would look at from the military perspective as a threat assessment. They're more concerned about keeping planes in the air from colliding. Um, you know, federal marshals are the ones that are responsible for, for you know, threat assessments on, on an aircraft. So the FAA isn't directly responsible. The FAA made a uh, software purchase um, when drones started coming out that was going to geofence uh, all the areas that were no, permanent no-fly zones. Um, and they, they were absolutely ecstatic about this ability to still allow, uh, you know, civilian, uh, you know, it was, it was essentially the continuation of the RC aircraft that, that people were playing around with. Um, so they, they get the software that geofences everything so that, you know, your, your drone software can now, uh, make sure that you're not violating, uh, controlled airspace. Who makes drones? Everybody. No, not everybody. Where do they get their components? China. Yep. Who do you think made the software for that? Who do you, who do you think made the software for that? that's integrated into their drone platform. I'll give, I'll give you a hint. It begins with China. Yeah. CCP. So, yeah. I mean, so you've got, you've got a, uh, an adversarial, uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying adversary. I'm saying adversarial, somebody that we know is going to antagonize us. And we just gave them not just, not just the, the normal, flight data uh controlled airspace but like everything that's controlled airspace in the united states we gave them all the geolocations for that and said you're not allowed to look here and we gave them we gave them essentially a jigsaw puzzle of the united states with all these holes taken out and all these patterns and the average person would look at them and they'd be like sweet it's safe um somebody somebody who's uh able to think like op four looks at that and says I now know every location of every secured site in the United States because it's all geofenced. Mm-hmm. Come on. Somebody somewhere has to start thinking like an 11 Bravo or an, an 0311. Uh, because that's what we do. We sit there and we look at these threats and we're like, how are y'all not seeing this? How are y'all not seeing this? Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into that territory where, you know, so you have, uh, and I'm, I'm about to bring this full circle for you. So we now know that we can manipulate people's emotions. We now know that we can target them for, for advertising and revenue generation and all these different things. And, and we've built this picture for how this happens. Um, and we know that this isn't just our technology doing this. This is also technology that's being done by other countries with manufacturing capabilities and computer programming capabilities and things like that. And you have, you know, let's say that you're an adversarial country uh, or not, not even actually. And I want to I want to actually include this in this because I think this is important to recognize, like how big of a problem this is. Um, So you have. This. Situation that we're in now where we're transnational criminal organizations um, are competitive with probably the the set the bottom half of, uh, global government governments. Um, they're, they're probably more competitive, uh, by half of them, if not more than half of them when it comes to GDP, uh, your, 
you know, your, your uh, drug organizations, human trafficking, all the, all, we know these organizations generate revenue. Uh, and I, I can't remember, was it, I think it was department of treasury, department of treasury, like two or three weeks ago, released a report. Um, and it was something in regards to, they'd been, they've been tracking like, uh, of all the, of all the money that is printed in the world, 80% of it is not in banks. 80%. That means it's sitting on a pallet somewhere or in somebody's pocket or in somebody's glove box, or, you know, we're talking coinage and, and printed dollars. It might've been, might've been the federal reserve that published this report. Um, because you know, this is directly tied to our inflation. Why do we print more money when well, we need more money? So more money gets. All right. Part two. Part two. <laughs> wow. We had an intermission. Dude. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah. You, yeah we got to <laughs> We got to roll. You got to you know, We have now have... entered control airspace. <laughs> Dude, you're gonna um, have to. You gotta. You gotta. You gotta. You gotta give us some light too at the end of the tunnel on this one. Yeah, absolutely. It, okay, um, that's the psychosecurity stuff, right? Uh, yeah, sure. sure. Well, yeah, no, I, I'm. We'll, we'll we'll get there in a minute. Yeah, I'll okay. give, I'll give you light. I'm not. I don't. Right. I don't want everybody to to. <laughs> No, I appreciate. Uh, no, actually, all no. This. Hang this on is, a second. Yeah, we'll, is... we'll actually we'll we'll give people light off air. Um, this is this is actually this is the hey you guys should do something about this. No, I'm not going to okay. help you out. You're okay. an agency. You should have this under control. Um, no, I. Uh, okay, so we now know that we can we can target um, people and and cause emotional state change. Um, we know that we can do that with some. I mean, with enough reliability where they're using it as revenue generation. Uh, so we we know that that uh, a lot of that technology is done overseas. A lot of that programming is done overseas. You know, it's not just us that's doing this. This is the whole world. Um, I mean, they, they've got they've got cell phone carriers and cell phone companies based out of Nigeria. Uh, we think of of Africa as you know the entire continent's a war zone. Um, it's not. That's those. That's that's the picture that we're painted of of Africa, um, but Africa, you know, it's got hot spots. But like any other continent, I mean, we have hot spots here in the United States. Don't go to Detroit. Uh, you know, things like that, where it's like where it's like you know you know the areas to avoid. You know the areas that are you know if if you're if you're black, you're not going to roll through uh, the South and on a Sunday evening because you know somebody out there is bored. And somebody's probably going to start a fight at the gas station or something like that. Um, you know, or, or you don't, you don't, you know, you don't make the deliveries after 4 p.m. in rich white neighborhoods in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, you know, because they're, you know, because your biggest threat is actually the the white woman that lives in the house that ordered the, the custom charcuterie board set from the local farmer, had no idea the local farmer was black. Can't can't possibly believe that that uh, there's black entrepreneurs in in Virginia, um, but you know, and, and so that you're and and this is actually this is a true story. There's a, a black heritage pork farmer uh, out of the the Chesapeake area um, that uh, said the most dangerous place that he had to deliver 
because uh, he delivered to Baltimore, he delivered to DC, he delivered to you know Northern Virginia and Southern Virginia, all these different areas. And he said the most dangerous place for him to deliver food was the rich white neighborhoods in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, because those are the people that would call the cops the fastest. And he's like, mm. he goes, you know, what's a black guy in a white van doing, you know, rich white neighborhood in Charlottesville? They still think like that there. You know, that's it's it's not just institutional, it's cultural. Um, you know, but uh, going going back to where I was going with this. So you've got, uh, you know, it's not our adversaries are not just nation states. They're transnational criminal organizations that have the resources and capabilities to build software uh, to to purchase these large data sets, um, you know, to run advertising. You know, I mean, God, imagine uh, imagine your your drug dealer having the same advertising capabilities as your, uh, you know, as Nike. I mean, it's not advertised as drugs, but if they can if they can track that that uh, vulnerable population, you do the same thing with human trafficking. Uh, I you know I could buy a data set and find out which girls are the most vulnerable to uh, self image. Um, you know that's and it's pretty horrific when you start thinking like that. Um, and then I started asking the question of okay, well if I were if I were a transnational organization or a nation state that was targeting uh, a population, what would I, what would I target? Because now that you can target everything, what do you target? You target your most valuable targets. Well, who thinks like this? Who's going to pick up on the fact that you're doing this? You're, you're people that have the ability to think like op four. So why would you target veterans with social engineering at, and, and I'm, I mean, we're, we're going deep into the weeds of, uh, you know, psychological tampering, why would you target your veteran population um, with these tactics? Because they're the ones that are going to think not only about, uh, you know, they're, they're not just the ones that are going to recognize that there's a threat. They're the ones who can think in counter threat. Um, they're the ones who see a threat and know how to respond to it. Um, so, you know, and, and we know that because that's what we do. So do we think that a you know, a nation state or a well-funded criminal organization isn't going to think the same way. And it's not just, it's not just veterans of military, it's veterans of law enforcement, it's uh, veterans of emergency medical services. It's everybody that is, can, can mitigate or triage the damage when it occurs. Um, so if you want to prep an area, I mean, and now we're getting into prepping the battle space language, stuff like that. Um, so going back to your original question, you know, the rise in suicide, how, you know, how do we counter this? Um, you know, Congress after four, four years of being warned, I think, uh, about TikTok being owned by the CCP, things like that took them four years to respond to a threat. And what, what is their actual response? Members of Congress aren't allowed to, to use this platform for official purposes. Really? I, and at this point, this is why I said we don't actually have a ship of state anymore. We have an imaginary hole where the ship of state used to be that we all plug it, plug that hole with our fingers and we're somehow still afloat. And to everybody else, it looks absolutely hilarious because they know how dysfunctional our, our government has gotten. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm sure somebody out there is looking at this as inflammatory language. I hope it is. Uh, but I'm not the threat. You're not the threat. Your, your veteran population are not the threats. Um, it's when 
uh, oh, I don't even want to, I don't even want to go this direction and make this religious because this isn't, um, this isn't, uh, uh, you know, I was going to, I was going to say, you know, what happens when a, a, a Islamist extremist gets hold of this? What, you know, okay, let's put it in terms, in language terms that the uh, population here might pay attention to in, in law enforcement bureaucracy. What happens when your white supremacists get a hold of, of technology like this or, or these ideas? Um, and, and it's, you know, I'm not talking about anything new. Uh, I'm talking about stuff that we, we played this game since the 1950s, 1960s. Um, you know, some of this was research that we pulled out of Germany after we went in, uh, actually you were the one that recommended the book that I read that, that got me thinking about like, what technology did we bring back from Germany? And it was, um, Talking about phenomena. Yes. Thank you. Um, the Das Anerbi, Das Anerbi project. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Ananerbi and doing, you know, what, what research was Germany doing into human psychology? I mean, that's the majority of the, the concentration camps. Uh, what made them so horrific were the psychological experiments that they were they were doing on people. You know, there there's a reason to fear things like the Holocaust happening again, and it wasn't just the the mass extermination. It was what was being done in those camps. You know, and and they got a hold of all the documents that came out of that. You know, what what was his name, uh, Joseph Mengel, um, all that stuff. And and you know, fast forward to the 1950s, 1960s after Operation Paperclip, clip there there U.S. doctors that went to work for uh, the CIA and DARPA and, you know, all these agencies. And so now you've got, uh, Sidney Gottlieb, uh, you know, the, yeah. And, and it wasn't until, you know, so this happens for 20 years, 20 years is a lot of research, even if you're doing it manually. Um, yeah. 20 years is a lot of time to make some really important headway. And you're already building off a body of research that you took into possession post-World War II. So, uh, now you've got, um, uh, the, the, Project Monarch and MK Ultra and all the all the MK projects where they were experimenting with uh, you know on on human psychology and understanding that and all that was done you know SRI Stanford University there was experiments done at Berkeley uh, there were experiments done at Harvard at Yale you know all these uh, tier one research facilities all these uh, Ivy League schools they're Ivy League schools because they're they were getting tons of money from the government to do research on this stuff. And it was, and it's not, the question wasn't, is this stuff uh, going to be weaponized? The question that they were asking is, how important is it to, to understand this depth of human psychology? Because if we're not, somebody else is. So we jumped in just as much as everybody else started doing this research. It was when that research started being done, uh, not, on, not only without sanction, but without permission of the, the population. Um, you know, and we can talk about a ton of different reasons to not necessarily find the federal government trustworthy. But for me, the biggest ones were the forced sterilization against people without them even knowing about it on uh, blacks and Native Americans in Oklahoma. Um, the Henrietta Lacks uh, case up in Baltimore. I used to live a block in from Henrietta Lacks Street in Dundalk, Maryland, uh, where she was originally from. And it was done at Johns Hopkins at a, a private research facility, um, you know, and and look at the good that came out of that research. But it was done without her consent. Um, you know, so now we're talking about the, the, the whole issue with consent. Well, uh, why aren't they giving people consent on running these tests on them? And, you know, you kind of do that head tilt like, 
who would ever say yes to being experimented with psychologically? Um, who, who, would, who would let it happen if it was uh, being done for commercial reasons and not say, hey, I want a better discount than that. So now you're messing with somebody's economic model. So we've had plenty of incentive to not let people know that this is happening. And at the same time, uh, you know, go back to, to our cybersecurity threats. We upload all of our, our research documents and publish them. We are so, our, our academic institutions are absolutely, the research money that comes in to make these tier one, tier two research facilities comes from the work that they publish, from the work that people know that they're doing. That's how you attract investment. So if we're putting all that information online and, and not everything gets published, some stuff gets intercepted before it actually hits the, the web. Um, but if we know that the, you know, the internet's easy to hack for PII, do we not think that somebody's out there just scraping research institutions for research data? Um, you know, I mean, there, there are websites that are paywalled, uh, you know, that, that might be one way, but we, we know for a fact that paywalls are actually probably one of the easiest things to bypass as, as a hacker. So, but again, we're not thinking about this in terms of, of op four, we're thinking about this as a red team. Oh, we're just, you know, we're protecting against the cyber threat because somebody might steal my credit card information. No, somebody's about to steal your research that you've spent the last five years working on, and they're going to take that and they're going to use it to their advantage. Um, you know, and again, this isn't this isn't just a, a nation against nation thing anymore. Add that third element to the mix of transnational criminal organizations, um, you know, and they have the resources to build these tools. They have the resources to they have the resources to have the staff to have these doctors. They're making better and better products for what they do. They're it's it, it's it's they're using the exact same business models that we should have been using for the last 30 years. Um, I don't think we have because they were able to I mean, they paid cash for the best and brightest. We're we're paying government rates for for research. Um, the good research does go to corporations. The best research. You'll never see that research hit the light of day. That's somebody's private stash. That's their that's their cutting edge. That's their advantage. Um, you know, and this is probably the, the point in the conversation where anybody listening is going to be like, you know, oh, no, he's going to rail against capitalism. Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, I'm going to suggest that capitalism is actually a word that's been inserted since the 1850s. Uh, we weren't founded on the idea of capitalism. We were founded on the idea of free market capitalism. The first appearance of capitalism appears in socialist literature in France. What? Capitalism is a socialist idea? Well, guess what? Socialism is a banking idea. Who funded Marx? I don't know that. The Rothschild family. God. If that's they, a name, I don't want to say. <laughs> they know it. All you, all you have to do, well, okay. You know what? I'm not going to make this about them. I'm going to make this about us. Do you know who he worked for? He was, he was a uh, Reuters, uh, Reuters um, uh, journalist in London tracking all the banking stuff. He was, he was learning banking. That's, that's how he's actually able to effectively rail against banking all the way up until a certain point. Um, he was a foreign correspondent in the city of London for Horace Greeley, who ended up becoming the secretary of state under Ulysses S. Grant, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Horace Greeley owned a newspaper in New York City. And his foreign correspondent in London, his man in London, was Karl Marx. 
that's and and if you want if you want some irony when when you think about you know like what what motivates somebody like Karl Marx to to rail against capitalism uh it was because his employer wasn't paying him well as a foreign correspondent trying to live in London our 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 future secretary of state uh that um had a had a newspaper was was the employer that he was railing against he absolutely Karl Marx absolutely had a bone to pick with with New York City with uh you know American capitalism um except for it wasn't American capitalism it was just that was American business um you know and and he had access to the the French socialist literature uh but I'm not entirely sure that Horace Greeley did um I think Horace Greeley was probably more concerned with the New York politics and then national politics when Grant tapped him for secretary of state. But outside of that, he's probably not paying attention to a workers movement. Uh, you know, we were, we were still trying to figure out how to recover from the civil war because the factories in the North and the plantations in the South, uh, you know, that was what the, the war was against. Um, thankfully we ended slavery, but we ended slavery because it was the biggest blow to, controlling the the plantation centers in the south that was how the north kept the the south in check because the south was like oh well you're charging us too much or you're not giving us enough of a cut of the profits so we're just going to find somebody else we'll build our own factories and the north north who had all the the you know the money from from you know u.s money and foreign money because there was a lot of foreign money invested in those u.s factories in the north said no you're not and we literally went to war over it and we ended up, they ended up, you know, they ended slavery in the process, which was great, but they ended slavery because of the economic impact it would have on the South of keeping the South in check. It was like, okay, well, you're not going to have slaves anymore. You're actually going to work. Your population is going to be too worried about feeding their families. Then, you know, then, you know, and, and, and it's not the, it, it, poor people didn't own slaves. You know, some of them may have, some of them may have inherited them, Um it was it was rich southern businessmen uh, that that owned the slaves, and it wasn't it wasn't the entire population. Uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think there were more Native Americans that owned slaves than white people in the South. Um, you know, it was just that was the, the sad truth of it is is that even some of the best things that happened happened for economic reasons to control somebody else. Um, yes, slavery absolutely needed to be ended. Uh, but when you start attaching the, yeah, but we can, we can weaponize this again, uh, people don't think like, you know, they don't, they don't think in terms of op four, um, that was absolutely an op four move. Um, and you know, this, this goes into the way that we think, we don't think adversarial adversarially about things like free market. We don't think about adversarially about, uh, you know, things that things that we take for granted as, you know, this is the way that civilization runs. We don't look at weaponizing everything. Other people do. Uh, the French have a school of economic warfare. They know how to take a country's economy apart at the seams. And 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 it's not just good. They're incredibly good at what they do. Um, and you I mean, when was the last war the French got involved in? Uh, outside of their their legionnaires, uh, they don't really have much of an international presence like that. They're known more for being what businessmen. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. So they found another way to be really effective without the without the the 
without them bearing the cost in terms of human capital. Um, so, you know, you, you start to ask questions about who has an incentive to target service members and former service members uh, to push them towards suicide and you start to see the economic reasons. Um, and then it gets really ugly when you actually look at it and say, well, there are people that people here in this own country that have economic reasons for targeting that population. Um, you know, it's it, maybe it is more malicious, but to me, it's more of like a, it's it's pragmatic. It's not it's not malicious. It's pragmatic. It's like, oh, we've got this this group of people that are going to undermine our, our revenue generating capabilities um, because that's the way that we think, because, every you know, it's and it's it's not uh, it's not free market. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Um, capitalism, as we know, it is not free market. Capitalism is just a, a tool of the banking, just as much as communism is. Um, you know, that was the whole reason why I brought that up is, you know, we like this polarization thing, but ultimately when it comes to Hegelian dialectics, uh, usually there's a third party that benefits from Hegelian dialectics and it's not the two people in the argument. It's somebody waiting for, because why, why spend all your energy when, uh, fighting, fighting two different groups, when you can let two different groups fight each other. And then you can go in when the other one's in the weakest weakened state. And now you're able to, it, it's like playing chess with three people and the one of them isn't making a move. You just assume that they're a spectator. Um, so you let, you let the two sides fight each other. And then when that uh, winning side is in a weakened state because they've been going at it all day with their adversary, uh, you jump in with your own army and say, eh, we're taking over. We're just human weather, man. So, well, yeah. Uh, the thing is, is so this here. Here's here's my little little glimpse of light for you. Um, <laughs> you're only human weather if you choose not to be something else. Um, so, you know, if it this is this is our midpoint call to action. Uh, here, here's our here's our advertising. Be better. Uh, critical thinking skills. Classical education. Um, you know, there, there's a reason, uh, and, and he, for, for historical purposes, uh, I think it's really important to point out that there's a reason, uh, why the Greeks absolutely hated democracy. Uh, the Greeks, you know, read Plato's Republic and you get a really good glimpse at what they thought of democracy. Um, it was the step on the, the rung above tyranny on a descent into hell. Um, they did not have a very high opinion. Why? Because even the ancient Greeks knew that public opinion was fickle and you can inflame somebody's emotions and force them to act in ways that they wouldn't act if they were being logical. So, you you know, the, the idea of direct democracy is the best and safest form of government is literally laughable when you start understanding how easy it is to incite people. And I don't need to incite people as as an adversary what if what if a third party is doing this you know you look at the you know everybody talks about look at the division in our country look at the division in our country um you know it, it's it's right versus left politics it's progressives versus conservatives it's this versus that um and i've gotten to the point where every time i see a this versus that i start looking for a third party somewhere 
um, who's going to benefit from this the most, <clears throat> adversarially speaking or economically speaking? Um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, you talk about things like gentrification. Um, you know, what happens when stuff like that gets weaponized? Uh, when I decide, you know, it's easier to, f I, I don't have to buy somebody's real estate at the price that they're asking. I just have to tank their neighborhood and they go in and buy it for pennies on the dollar. Uh, you know, and, and I'm talking about, you know, this is, this is done to, uh, large black populations in the cities. This is done to uh, white, white populations in rural areas, you know, farms. Um, you know, you, you talk, I mean, this is, this is a real estate tactic. Economically, it makes sense. Ethically, good God almighty, if we've gotten to the point where that's even a consideration, we're, we're about to have our, 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 our stuff checked. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, when, when, when ethics is a matter of prag, uh, pragmatism, uh, you don't have a form of ethics, you have a form of convenience. And generally speaking, that convenience only, you know, there, somebody's going to pay the piper at some point. And, and that, you know, it's that third party that's watching. And it's, and it's anybody who wants to be an opportunist. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, that we become opportunists. I'm suggesting that we actually sit back and evaluate what it is that that we advocate for you know almost every sitting member of congress at some point has referred to our country as a democracy we're not a democracy we're a republic we're a republic for very very important reasons when you start to understand that form of government and why that form of government is in place and this goes back to um uh, i think it was timothy thomas writing for uh dod publication was the one that made the observation that the mind doesn't have a firewall and then uh, General Valelli in Mind War um, references that. Uh, and essentially the whole point of Mind War was if y'all keep playing, <clears throat> if y'all keep playing the PSYOPs game and messing with people's psychology, you're going to build in an immunity to uh, psychological operations. And it's not going to work anymore, but you're not going to have another form of tactics. Um, and this goes back to the whole idea of, uh, you know, why not just tell people the truth? Um, why not put the information out there and let people uh, let let people let people make their assessment based off of the truth instead of based off of lie? Because you're you're now spending twice the amount of resources, not only in maintaining the truth but also in maintaining the lie for everybody else. Um, so, in terms of economics, psyops is actually probably one of the the least economically sound forms, um, but it's a credit system. You're you're borrowing against a future debt that's going that's accruing with interest so you take all the stuff that we just spent the last hour and a half talking about and you introduced automation into it and what happens when when i can build platforms that uh you know vacuum up the entire internet and use that as the basis for training data for ais uh you know if i can train an ai based off of uh, a uh, zip code. Um, and I can, I can make myself sound exactly like somebody that grew up in rural Georgia and, you know, by golly, you will never pick up on me coming. Um, but we're doing it, you know, and, and people laugh at bots. I mean, bots are hilarious. They started off as these obnoxiously incoherent, uh, little avatars that pop up in the corner of your screen, the Microsoft paperclip, uh, you know, the little, uh, would you like to chat with me? No, you're a salesperson. I do not want to chat with you. Go away. Um, and you know it's and you know it's a computer system. You know you you make a phone call now 
And chances are you're going to be talking to some form of, of automated uh, service before, you know, it's, it's screening. It's, it's getting rid of the, it's, it's a sifting process. Mm. Um, you know, this is, this is probability theory 101 going all the way back to the 1920s at MIT, where they started researching probability theory as it applied to aerospace, as it applied to populations, as it applied to all these different things, they realized, oh my gosh, probability theory is awesome. Civilization will self-sort itself. Um, and, and you know, we've, we've known about, uh, I can't remember what the name of the machine is, but it's the one that sorts the marbles into different colors uh, just by allowing them to sort based off of vibration and gravity um, gets to the bottom and all the colors are completely sorted. Not a single influencing factor outside of their color. Uh, so there's that, that self-sorting mechanism that happens in natural systems and we're, we're a natural system. We're part of a natural system. Um, and so when you start looking at probability theory and how it contributes to some of the stuff, you know, that, you know, how, what, what is it, uh, in, in marketing terms, it takes 3% of a population or, or, or a demographic to, <clears throat> to begin capturing a market. Like that's that you're that first 3% of capturing a market is what you aim for in your sales and marketing plan for a business plan. Um, coincidentally, it only takes 1% of a population to maintain a revolution. So, you know, we, we learned that in, in uh, Korea, Vietnam, uh, 1960s, 1970s. Uh, we watched what, you know, Mao did in China. We watched what the, the Soviet Union did. Um, you know, we studied that in, from a, in terms of probability theory uh, and understanding those dynamics and looking at how many people does it take to, you know, when you're using guerrilla tactics. Mao wrote an entire book on this called The Protracted War. Uh, and this was, these were guerrilla tactics. This is how you fight against a an organized army uh you know over time and we have units that dedicated their entire you know military units here in the united states that dedicated, dedicated their entire lives to understanding small unit tactics like that and we send these guys over to these foreign countries and they get you know um you know they they know how to uh teach a small group of people to be very effective against a very large enemy um you know we we worked in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union and then had our tactics work against us in Afghanistan uh, and sometimes with the help of, of other countries like Russia and China. Um, but the, you know, the, the fact is, is we've been studying this methodology for a long time. We have people that are, are well-versed in these resistance movements. So again, why do you want to target the veteran population to increase suicide? Um, is it a stability operation? Is it, you know, maybe somebody's looking at it as uh, de-radicalization. You've got people that are getting pushed towards this flashpoint because economically we're not doing so hot because we, you know, we borrowed against a future that we were, we were absolutely sure was going to be there. And then all of a sudden you start seeing the signs in 2008 that eh, maybe, maybe it's a little bit more inflated than we thought it was. Um, you know, and I think 2008 was really the, the, People were warning about it before 2008. Um, I had a, a guy that I knew that wrote a, a paper on this and got a D minus in, in that class that he wrote this economics paper for 
And three months later, his professor calls him after the crash of 2008 and goes, your paper was 100% spot on. I'm restoring your grade to an A+. Plus. Mm, and he ended, wow. up, he ended up graduating three months after he was supposed to because uh, he was just like, well, I'm not, going, I'm not going back for that stupid class. I'll wait till another class comes up and then I'll do my last requirement for my degree. Um, you know, so yeah. there, there were people before 2008 that were predicting it, but they were, they were laughed at by the, the institutional uh, finance um because uh, that's ridiculous you know it's too big to fail stuff like that you know that was the belief that they had was that they were absolutely impenetrable and all of a sudden 2008 happens and you got the that crash um we're we're living through something right now that is going to prove out to be about 10 times worse but at the end of it things aren't going to look like they looked after 2008 there's no not going to be a recovery in the sense that we think about it um, because geopolitical lines are shifting to a far higher degree than I think most people realize. And maybe maybe some of the reason why it's not advertised in the media is, uh, you know, for safety reasons. But I think a lot of it is just people are absolute in denial that maybe they got outplayed, um, you know. And, and so you start looking at the geopolitical incentives. And again, this ties back into who's got an incentive to target veteran population if they want to if they want to drive suicide. Uh, among the veteran population? Is it somebody that's trying to destabilize? Is it somebody that's trying to protect? You know, when you start getting into those questions, you're, you're going to have to ask some really, really hard questions of, uh, is there the potential that this is being done by our own side? I mean, how, how much, how, what, is, what is the VA's budget? I don't know. I can't. I can't remember. I have. I have those stats somewhere. It's pretty significant. How effective is the VA? It's hit or miss. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it, an, an interesting point on that is I. I do deal with a lot of. Uh, I don't deal with a lot, but I. I. I am in contact with a lot of Vietnam era guys, and they mm -hmm. all. They all love the VA. Mm -hmm. Love it. And a lot of that to me, you know, I question if it's because of how poorly they were treated, you know, after their service. And then now they're finally getting help. So everything's great to them where, you know, our era is kind of we came back kind of expecting to be taken care of if we had problems. So, we're yeah, you at least knew that there was a, a contract that said that they had to and you could you could. Contest right. The and we're you. just let down by everything because we're, you know for whatever reason yeah, the, the, but, the disgruntled the disgruntled vet meme but yeah but like that that vietnam era like the ones that i have they all love it it's great it's great and it's like okay well i know a lot of people that would say differently but you know it's i don't know maybe it, yeah. it is more on an individual basis but it so. depends i think a lot of it too depends culturally uh at you know so when those guys came back from vietnam uh Alcohol uh, is actually a really good example of this. Um, alcohol didn't have quite the cultural restrictions that it did through 80s, 90s, especially the 90s uh, and 2000s. Um, you know, so they their version of doing OK was the same thing that their parents version of doing OK was post World War Two. They drank themselves to death. Um, and the ones that survived, uh, you know, comparatively speaking, yeah, they are doing just fine. Um, could they be doing better? 
they, you know, they're, they're, they probably see it as, well, if I hadn't gone to Vietnam, I could be doing better, right. but this is just, you know, this was the, you know, the price I paid for going. Um, our generation doesn't really look at things like that uh, because, you know, we've got, we've got success stories of, we have more success stories than we do of people not doing so well. Um, you know, I mean, for starters, you know, comparatively speaking to Vietnam, our casualty rate for the entire, entire global war on terrorism was like maybe a month's worth of battles in Vietnam. So, you know, in terms of Viet, in terms of Vietnam vets, yeah, we're, we're doing pretty damn good. Um, except for you start adding in the suicide numbers and that number starts to look a lot different. And so now you've got to ask that question of, okay, what, what is different between Vietnam and now? Um, and I think a lot of it is like how people dealt with things culturally uh, you know, the, you know, your, your World War II and Korean vets drank, uh, your Vietnam vets drank and they had wheat, uh, you know, they had drugs. Um, you know, how many, how many homeless Vietnam vets are there that are homeless because, you know, just their coping mechanism was drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, when they didn't, they didn't have another coping mechanism. So they, you know, you, you talk to the guys that are in a treatment program or, you know, being taken care of by the VA, they're probably, you know, coming out the, the other side of, you know, homelessness or, um, you know, living below the poverty line, uh, you know, things like that, where, you know, their, their ability to, to perform in an economic capacity was greatly diminished after Vietnam, um, whether it was by choice or by, you know, casualty of war. Right. Uh, we have a, a very different way of looking at, at that, but we're still bringing, we, you know, we still brought bag, baggage back with us, um, you know, and then, you know, add in the, the narrative stuff when you start uncovering, you know, why were we, why were we actually in Iraq? You know, we've been told it was for oil. We've been told it was for weapons of mass destruction. We've been told it was for all these different things, you know, the on the fringe conspiracy. And you've got, you know, we were we were there because the cent, uh, they were one of the holdouts against central banking. Um, you know, so you've got all these different reasons why we might have gone there. And none of them are what we told or what we experienced. And the experience part, I think, is the, the big part of uh, <clears throat> the, the targeting mechanism. Um, so, you know, this goes back into to understanding like the, the MK Ultra stuff and what was the whole point of that, that, you know, why, why do we, why do we have this fascination with trauma? Um, and it's in terms of, of probability theory, uh, you have, let's say 70% of your population is susceptible to trauma in some form or another. Um, but what about that other 30%? Uh, they might be a little bit, you know, we call it resilience. Uh, they might be a little bit more resilient against trauma. And, you know, again, you know, it's, it's, we're not talking in black and white, we're talking in gradient. Uh, so we're having to use an entirely different form of mathematics to understand this. Um, and this is, this is actually where I wish Pat was here because Pat can really go into, go into detail about how a lot of this stuff fits together. Um, and, and not just from like the mathematics standpoint, but understanding the, the psychology and the, uh, um, the politics behind some of this, like why, why it was done the way it was done. Um, so you look at uh, population distribution, um, 
you know, from from the from the stuff that came out in the seventies uh, for MK Ultra and, and Monarch and, and all that stuff. Um, if you look at it just as what was released in terms of of the uh, the experiments that were done, you know, it was you know the focus was on giving people drugs without their knowledge, stuff like that. It's trauma based research. This is what came out of Germany. Um, you know, this is what they were fascinated with. Was uh, it wasn't just what you know, can, can you split somebody's personality so they can be a sleeper cell? No, you find that out as consequences for doing the exact same thing that Germany was trying to do. Germany wanted to understand how to build super soldiers. They wanted a resilient population. Why? Because in the 1920s, you had Weimar Germany. Weimar Germany was the area that was rapidly industrialized and the entire population was supporting this industrial model of uh, I believe it was German, French, and American uh, banking interests and business people that went to Weimar Germany to set up these, um, you know, the, the factories and stuff like that. I mean, we built the German war machine before World War II. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't wasn't something that you know just happened because Germany had a bone to pick after World War One. No, we went in after World War One and we helped build their economy back. And we built in all these, you know, all, all this, this manufacturing mechanism because we didn't know any better. We thought, you know, you know, we're, we're going to actually give Germany a reason to, to still be a world player. Um, and in Weimar, Germany, you had parents that were prostituting their kids to, to these American and English and French businessmen um, to the point where, you know, I mean, the, it was... It was in an era where the idea of prostitution wasn't really foreign. It was still part of culture. Like that was what people did if they couldn't pay the bills. Um, and so, you know, you've got this this group of, of, you know, pretty small demographic of Germans that are traumatized from childhood because they're, you know, they're the entertainment value for this uh, economic and business class, uh, you know, the aristocrats. Um, and you know, we, we, you kind of laugh at that and then you realize where did the SS recruit most of its senior officers from? Children, right? I mean, yeah, from Weimar, from the Weimar region. Yeah. Um, so you've got this, you know, the the SS officers were notorious for being, I mean, they were merciless. Uh, well, what made them merciless? Because they were traumatized as kids, you know, the, Germany didn't just have this population of people that suddenly decided they become Nazis. They become Nazis because the alternative, I mean, they, they literally did have a bone to pick with the rest of Europe. Um, you know, and it was because of their experience. And this is, this is the, the, the targeting mechanism. We, when, when we went in and we understood uh, how Germany, I mean, we, we took Germany apart at the seams, trying to understand how it happened because we were absolutely positive that we were not going to let this happen again. Uh, we were not going to let this this uh, form of, of um, you know, radical nationalist ideology uh, happen that is going to go through and exterminate, you know, millions of people in these concentration camps because it, it wasn't because they viewed the Jews and the homosexuals and all these other people as uh, an inconvenience or, um, you know, they, they, they weren't getting rid of the bottom rung of society. They were getting rid of the people that they felt were responsible for what they had endured both nationally and as children. Um, you know, they, they, they went after, they went after the people that funded it, you know, 
Uh, so, you know, and it's and it's very easy to to glass this over and just say, you know, well, you know, it needed to happen. Uh, you know, anti anti fascism. You know, that's a, a great target line now. Um, but why did why were they why were they radicalized? Um, you know, that, the the why part of the question is the one that that really starts to give you insight. Uh, if you're allowed to ask why, and, you know, we're always told, well, you can't ask why. I, I was that 11 Bravo. I was that infantry guy that was like, well, why are we doing it this way? Because, uh, I mean, this is this is this is how if I was op for this is how I would take this apart. So, you know, post World War II, uh, we don't just get access to this research. We start conducting this research ourselves for the exact same reason. Uh, we wanted to build super soldiers because the SS were I mean, if, if all of Germany's army had been SS officers, nope, we would not have won World War II. Uh, and, and I would say we probably would have lost first in Germany and then in Japan and, you know, elsewhere. Um, but the, the whole point of, you know, this is, again, why, why, do, we do, why do we do these things during the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, you know, and then like other government programs, you know, Congress finds out about them. They ask questions. It takes them four years to get through the, the hearings. And then they're like, no, you're going to you're going to end this program because it's an inconvenient truth. Um, the research has already been done. They, are, they already understand the mechanism. So fast forward to the 1990s, uh, late 90s. You've got um, same, one of the same universities that participated in the original research uh, out of Stanford. And Stanford has the behavioral design labs. And Tristan Harris talks about this, uh, about behavior modifications and they've got a matrix of 16 different targeting vectors for essentially causing behavioral change in people and that's and that's just like you know those those 16 vectors are kind of like uh that's how you that's how you condition somebody um and they understood that and it i mean you know and the the great thing about web archive is uh, once a, once something is on the internet, it's on the internet forever, unless you have enough money to pay the web archive people to take it down. Um, so uh, you can't necessarily find it on their website now, but you can go do a web archive search for the behavioral design uh, and behavior modification uh, tech techniques. And it's not, a, I mean, once you do that, you know exactly uh, who and where to go look for, for the research papers on the actual research that was done, because this was a university. They were advertising that you know they needed research money, so of course they're publishing papers. Um, and this is where big tech gets involved in research and starts buying research out of you know once the once the government patent on things have expired, it's up for grabs. So you know you've got these corporations that went in and bought all this research and then funded research uh, and funded more research on this. So all the stuff that was done during the 50s, 60s, and 70s is after the late 90s being automated. Um, that was, that was the big tech solution, uh, was, oh, we'll take all these different technologies and we're not going to look at the ethics. We're going to look at the, the pragmatism. We're going to look at how practical is this? Oh, well, if we can automate it, we don't have to train people to do these tactics. It'll just, it'll happen, you know, in the course of, of somebody playing around with social media or, or doing these searches. So we absolutely culturally understand how psychology works. We, we like to pretend that we don't, um, you know, so that, <clears throat> again, that brings up the question of who actually has an incentive. Uh, so you've got nation state actors, you've got 
um, non-nation state, uh, transnational criminal organizations. You have corporate interests, you have economic interests, you have all these different interests. Uh, so I don't think the question is who is targeting um, because anybody, anybody can and anybody is targeting any given de demographic at any given time for one of those reasons. Um, we're at that point, we just, we don't see it happening in real time, just like electrons. We don't see them moving, so we don't assume that that your electrical stuff is safe. Um, everybody's doing this. Uh, and if you're not, you're not competitive, and that's why your, your businesses go under, um, is because you don't understand the game that's being played. And, and to the majority of them at this point, this yes, this is absolutely a game. Um, it doesn't make it any less horrific. It doesn't make it any less or any more ethical, um, but it's a game. It's there. It's, it's a set of rules on how things function. And that's where, you know, game theory comes into play is how do you, how do you play through this? What are your, what are your options? What moves can you make? Uh, and so, you know, you, you look at what is culturally what's offered. Um, and this is, this is where like I break with uh, a lot of the, um, the idea of, revolution, counter-revolution, uh, and understanding those methodologies, because you're either given a scenario where, where you comply or you, uh, resist kinetically. Um, and those are you, I mean, you talk to, you talk to anybody who's over the age of 50, that's the, that's the boomer response. You respond kinetically. Um, and, you know, and when, when you don't see those responses, you know, we want to talk about how people are, are radicalized. Uh, people are radicalized when, when they see, they start moving in that direction of radicalization when they see their grievances being ignored. Um, step one, I mean, literally deprive somebody of the right to justice. Uh, and I guarantee you have a future radical on your hands. And I don't, I don't care what their political ideology is. I don't care what their, uh, what their race is. I don't care what their orientation is. I don't care about any of that. All I want to know is, has their grievance been denied? Why do people get out of the military? Why do, why do, why do you, uh, what is it? 85,000 people a year, uh, between the ages of 18 and 25 leave military service. Um, if I remember, if I remember my numbers correctly, it's been a while since I've done, done this work. Um, so 18 to 25 year olds, 85% of that population leaves the military. Uh, and you know, and they just chalk it up. There's attrition rate. Talk to any one of them. And I guarantee they have a grievance. Something was not addressed while they were in, otherwise they would have reenlisted. Um, and, and this is, I, I've, I've gone toe to toe with, uh, commanders and XOs over this, like your, your command climate is why they're getting out. Um, you know, and, and even in good organizations, um, I would actually say that really good organizations have an even higher attrition rate, uh, not necessarily for the, um, I wouldn't necessarily call it, call it a grievance. Um, but if something is functioning smoothly, somebody who is is not apex predator level in that organization is going to look at that and be like, yeah, there's no point for me to be here. Um, your your highest levels of camaraderie fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum between a really, really good unit and a really, really abusive unit. Um, and you you keep people because you keep them engaged. Uh, you know, and, and this, this applies not just to, uh, the military, this applies to politics, this applies to religion, this applies to every facet of life. 
it's part of Maslow's hierarchy. I think it's the third tier is people want to know that they're not just not just that their needs are being met, but they're uh, that they're a part of something that they're needed. Um, you know, and that's the the larger sense of community is that they're an active part of, of it and not being taken advantage of and having their grievances ignored. And at the same time, uh, not being, you know, outpaced. I mean, why, why do, why do people retire in the first place? Oh, they can't keep up with the young guys anymore. Um, you know, they're, they're, they can't keep up with the changes in technology. They're at the point where it just takes way too much energy to, to try and re-understand something that's, that's changed, you know, where three months ago, their job was perfectly fine and safe. And in three months that, you know, part of that process has been automated and you made them responsible for, for not just, uh, doing what they were doing, but doing that and maintaining that, that automation part of it. And they don't even speak that language. Um, they don't, it's, it's not, and it's not even that they, <clears throat> you know, your, your guys that survive in those environments and your, your women that survive in those environments are, are pretty adaptable. Um, but you look at the majority of people are not adaptable like that. They, they don't have that mental plasticity where they can, you know, they can keep upgrading, you know, the wetware in pace with the firmware and the hardware and the software. Um, it just, it takes way too many calories and they can be hanging out at the house, raking leaves and hanging out with the grandkids on the weekend. And they look at that and they're like, yeah, that's the better option. I'm tired. Um, you know, and again, uh, that, that sense of being tired, that's a, that's a, an emotional marker that can be targeted and manipulated. And, you know, going back to how do you get a radical? Well, you've got this, this population of, of 65 and older, they're, they're not going to be radicalized in the same way. Um, what they're going to be radicalized into doing is going to be something probably more akin to economic warfare uh, or, um, you know, you can weaponize them through their investments, uh, things like that. Uh, their, their form of re retaliation is going to be the, the quiet quitting of senior citizens, uh, and, and we laugh because uh, quiet quitting only became a thing when our 40-somethings started doing it. Our 65-year-olds have been doing it their entire life. That's what they work towards is that ability to quiet quit. Uh, because we we have this idea that once somebody reach, reaches a certain age, they don't need to be engaged anymore. And that's and I think psychologically, that's where a lot of the, the uh, deterioration in age, um, you know, we could have a much older population uh, if we wanted to, if we kept our, our senior citizens engaged. Um, you know, if our nursing homes were designed to be somewhere where people wanted to go visit their their relatives, uh, not where you, you know it's it's the the cold storage or, or storage unit for yeah. old people. Um, you know, in the same and, and the veterans homes and the you know, but now that that age breakdown is starting to walk itself backwards into the fifties and into the forties and into the thirties where people are just tired of playing this game because it's been, you know, it's all been purchased on credit and they just see that, that debt growing and nobody's got a solution for paying that debt off, you know, and, and I'm, I'm talking about in terms of like, you know, the, the great, uh, what is it? The, the social contract, uh, they're seeing the interest accruing on that social contract and it's walking itself back further and further and further to where there, you know, people are starting to realize younger and younger that there's no escape from the consequences of this. Um, you know, so again, going back to, uh, you know, this is, this is more, I guess, language and methodology around how do you target uh, people um, that are in this state is, I mean, it's, it's a target rich environment. Everybody is tired. 
your veterans especially. They've come back from spending the last 20 years at war. The, the last time that happened culturally, I think, was the 1600s or 1700s. That was a 30-year war, the Napoleonic era. Um, you know, and, and outside of, like, the, the Civil War clashes in Africa, um, you know, South, South America, Central America got a little bit violent for a couple years, but it, it didn't, it wasn't 30 years of war. Not not like you see in, like, Sierra Leone or, or um, you know, some of the countries that have the reputation for the child soldiers. Why do you have child soldiers in the first place? Because you've killed all the older population and you know the same way that Germany knew and the same way that we knew that if you traumatize children, they're merciless when they become adults. That is that is the literal methodology for building sociopaths. Yeah, and, and all of this is absolutely methodology. You know, we 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 call it research papers or understanding um, the 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 fun little fact of, of humanity that nobody wants to really address is uh, everything can be weaponized. And all it takes is going and talking to an 11 Bravo to figure that out or an 0311, uh, any Marine actually. Um, so, even crayons. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask, um, <clears throat> is it just incompetent? I mean, let's go off the notion that we have the best and the brightest in the United States. Why is it that we haven't built up certain types of immunity or upgrades? I mean, there is an entropy taking place that's going to come at some point. It's going to inflict mm -hmm. at some point, and it's going to bite us in the ass. Is it like too late in the game? Is it like legitimate, like incompetence? Ah, we're just going to keep doing the same old thing because it's what we've done. Um, there's kind of like a semblance of hope with this kind of like cannibalism that's taking place institutionally. These motherfuckers are eating themselves uh, as a result of uh, particulars. Um, so I'm, so <clears throat> this is my programming attempting to triage or accept that, you know, the concept that I talk about all the time, metal war, right? This is mm -hmm. an all out fucking war. You know, on one level, I can understand that people don't have the lexicon uh, to frame what's happening. And part of that is because something that Pat talks about, which is, you know, identity heuristics, right? All of it is all being shaped uh, for a specific type of absorption so that it can, so that that human weather can be modified for a particular thing. And so there's layer upon layer of what Kilcullen, David Kilcullen talks about is decisive shaping taking place for some type of end game or for some type of output. And that's catching up. So like, it seems to me that we're just attempting to, or there's this kind of like natural resegregation. We're going where we're like naturally looking for things to either one, give us the ability to not cope or just either there's a better way to do things. Is that still possible? That's one of the questions that I want to ask Pat. It's like, it's all bleak. It's all, it's all despair. I mean, I deal with it on a daily basis. I have to go do home visits and do the fucking situations that some of these kids find themselves in. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's third world shit. It's, it's Iraq shit. It's Afghanistan shit. It's Africa shit. And there's this, you know, there's, 
there's methods to approach, you know, to, to, to gather logistics and resources so that that person or, or that family can potentially reach a point, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's like collapsed on itself. And they're going to go through this kind of like cycle of the similar cycle of their parents and it becomes epigenetic and it becomes inheritable. And that bioresilience threshold gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and before you know it, you know, we're, we're all speaking Mandarin or North Korean or, or some, something else. I mean, what's, what's, what's a guy to do? What's a gal to do? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually, and I don't want to, I don't want to do this in a long-winded way because I want to actually say this in a way that is concise enough to, um, to, to give you guys some light, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, the, I think the first part is recognizing that this is, this is the game that's always been played. Um, you know, call, calling a game is a, is a cope. Uh, this is this is life. This is biology. Um, we're, we're we're literally living through one of those <clears throat> spikes in evolution, uh, and some of it is you know some of it is self inflicted if we want to call it that way. Uh, you know, we did this at collectively as humans. Um, you know, we chose the chose the paths that we chose, so on and so forth. Um, the I think one of the things that sets humans apart from, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I do, I do actually, I want to, I want to address, there's a, a third component of this besides just the physical and mental. Um, and that's the spiritual. And I do want to get to that, but I want to talk about this in terms that people are generically going to understand first. Um, because this is, uh, one of the things that makes us most unique about our species is the ability to think analytically uh, and abstractly and make conscious decisions when we choose to make conscious decisions instead of just letting uh, biological process take hold. We can, we, we actually have the ability to intervene in the, the science and biology of things and change reverse courses. Uh, that's something that uh, pretty much no other animal species uh, can do. Um, and, and that is fascinating for several reasons. Uh, and, and I've got a friend that is absolutely going to love that. I use this specific word. Um, uh, you can call it uh, reconciliation or repentance in spiritual terms, uh, is the ability to reverse the, the, the course on an action that's been taken, uh, by being repentant. Um, and <clears throat> we, we think that repentance is, a, is an act of contrition. Uh, it's, it's being bested by some uh, divine being that, you know, we don't, we don't really have a, a really great grasp of. Um, and this idea that, you know, oh, well, if I just make amends, if, you know, if I, if I sacrifice to the gods, I mean, this is literally part of human psychology, even in, in uh, polytheistic cultures, uh, is the idea that you can appease a deity uh, by taking some measurable steps, uh, whether it's sacrificing an, an animal or, Sacrifice. Uh, Polly, Polly served with me in the same unit. We did two tours together. We're in the same company. Um, 
he got out in 2010 and I stayed in, did a third tour. And man, I want to say 10 years went by where we linked back up virtually. I just got done doing uh, contract work with uh, state department and, um, I was just kind of, um, attempting, well, I've been writing a book for a very long time. Um, and <laughs> let's just say that every, the, every the, fucking the, again, the veracity of, you know, I, I should probably shouldn't even say it, but I got to use the language. It's the security and operational environment. It's just constantly changing that it's almost impossible to keep up with everything. I was writing science fiction stories that were, that came true. And what's the point now? Right. I mean, I can use it as continuity of the process. Um, yeah, it's just, it, so again, I don't, I mean, that was just the issue. And nonetheless, we've been doing this, you know, uh, podcast project together, um, using it as a form of narrative mediation for, for guys in order to, um, attempt to mitigate the suicide epidemic that's just impacted our demographic and, and now it's engulfed, you know, this, I mean, it's, it's always engulfed the civilian sector, but, um, around two and a half years ago when I met Nate, you know, I just, I just started seeing different signs and we talked about this yesterday. It just seemed that things were a lot more deliberate than just guys dealing with, you know, damaged biomarkers in their epigenome or a con being in a constant state of despair that was leading to these end. um, Little by little, as new data was released and, and new methods were being applied, I began to see this pattern. And I think the most recent pattern was um, there was a, a, a organization called the American Warrior Partnership, and they did a they've been doing a two year study called Operation Deep Dive, and they basically gone through eight states worth of data and reassessed uh, suicide uh, data points, and they found that. There's, there was a 2.4% increase in the suicide rate. So instead of 17 deaths or suicides uh, per day regarding the veteran suicide, it was actually 44. And the main mode of mechanism was overdoses. So what I've been attempting to do is look at how China has been pumping fentanyl through the Sinaloa cartel and looking at the states that have the most overdoses and it's just trying to unpack the layers of, of where the that mechanism of you know opioid or fentanyl is impacting these areas, and you know not not to sound conspiratorial, but if we're looking at this you know through a, a a frame of warfare, then it makes sense to target that demographic. And so, what's the basis or the metric behind that? Well, we can see what the Russians were doing. Uh, in between 2016 and 2018, when they basically sock puppeted the entire demographic, um, which was a combination of unknown Russian actors and the Internet Research Agency. And there's a extensive report that was that made it to Congress. And I believe it was the day that they were attempting to impeach Donald Trump. And so it never got the attention that it deserved. And the guy, Christopher Goldsmith, he kind of just, he kind of just continued doing what he's been doing, which is just targeting white supremacists online. And it just never got the attention. And so, so the main mode and mechanism, right? So it's not the, I mean, yes, the fentanyl or the opioid is killing the person, but what's leading up to that. And we all know that, well, at least some of the large body of evidence suggests that people with, you know, certain types of trauma, depression, anxiety, 
um, are easily modified to do certain types of extremist activities or certain types of activities. And so you follow the human weather patterns and you, you, you kind of get this narrative, okay, like, okay, this is deliberate, uh, but why is it deliberate? And not to get into like speculation, we know that there are certain populations in the United States that are a kind of social infrastructure that allow us to do these things uh, of being free. And so it would make sense. Let's target those. And the issue that we face is, again, we don't have, we have non-adaptive systems and the non-adaptive systems are just falling so far behind. And you have this new uh, technology, these, these new types of frameworks, and we just can't seem to catch the fuck up. And, you know, uh, and I asked Nate this yesterday, you know, what's a, a guy and a gal to do in, in this fucking new world? And yeah. Nate took us to fucking school yesterday, man. <laughs> He's good at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know if you want to pick up from there, Nate. I mean, man, we we talked, man, I want to say six hours afterwards. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of... So we left off uh, in, in what happens when, when the process gets automated. Um, when you, you know, when, when you know that you can... Uh, target a, a specific demographic it gets automated and you know now you're bypassing attacking critical infrastructure to disrupt a, a city town uh whatever it is now you can just go straight to the the wetware and start uh you know but now now you're not just going after a city council member or you're not just going after a um you know uh, uh, somebody on the the city board or the school board or uh you know, a police chief or, you know, the, the, your typical, uh, target, you're going after, you know, an entire zip code of people. And now you're playing the probability theory game where, you know, you know, Hey, let's, let's say that we can hit 37%, uh, of the population is influenced, you know, from, from one to N, uh, degree, what happens you know how, how do you how do you even think about safeguarding against something like that um you know and some of these some of these questions uh, i i think um the scenarios are more severe kind of to to draw attention to it but it can be far more subtle than that you know and, and it's kind of like the you know every, everybody knows what cambridge analytica was uh where you targeted uh specific zip codes to either get somebody to vote or get somebody to stay away from the polls um you know, and, and they and they did it in such a way that it wasn't really highly detected um, until somebody admitted that, you know, oh, yeah, this is what we were doing. This is awesome. And everybody was like, you did what? Uh, you know, so the, the, the reaction to mass manipulation by zip code was absolute shock. Nobody stopped to really ask, like, wait, hang on, you can even do that? Um, you know, it was just kind of like we, we kind of like bled into this uh new state of being where it was just kind of like this this morph happens and then everybody kind of takes it for granted that oh yeah that's going on um you know there, there was no shock at what happened uh or how it happened there was only shock that somebody actually had the audacity to do it mm -hmm. um you know so and i think that's you know conditioning since the 1920s uh since we started doing all the research on marketing and understanding human psychology in regards to getting people to buy things uh, yeah, we kind of taken it for granted that if you want somebody to buy your product, you're going to have to manipulate them in some form or another. 
you got to you've got to speak a language that they're going to understand. Um, you know, and you you throw things like that at the wall where you know you figure out what sticks to a percentage. Um, but now you've got you know like Chat GPT. Uh, all I need is a, a record of how you talk online, and I can match your grammar one for one. Um, I don't even I don't even I don't. It's no longer throwing stuff at the wall to see if it sticks. And we've been playing around with this to to kind of get an idea of like how quickly can this happen and within my uh and and pat you've got probably a better picture uh with a far wider demographic i've been talking specifically to professionals online and i would say maybe three four five of them uh within seven posts on linkedin i can get them to agree with me um, and, and if you know anything about sales, uh, it, the fastest one I've had is literally one post. And the dude was like, wow, that's brilliant. Completely blew his argument out of the God. water using his own language. Yeah. Yeah, sure. um, and it was, and it was the, the irony is, is that this was somebody who was, uh, like their, their initial post was talking about, um, the, the, uh, graduated income tax, um, how, you know, you absolutely have to tax the, the rich. Uh, and I asked ChatGPT for a counter argument, uh, and I wanted it to uh, advocate for uh, a flat sales tax uh, at the federal level um, and posted the counter argument. And his response was along the lines of, oh, my God, that's brilliant. That would totally work as long as it, as long as you're making sure that everybody's paying the same tax rate. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's you know, it happens at the cash register every day. We know we know it works. Um, you know, we do it at the state level. Why wouldn't it work at the federal level? And now you don't need income tax. Now, now you're now everybody that's spending money is, you know, you're, you're paying a sales tax. Uh, but then on the counter side, you're not penalized for, uh, you know, for accumulating wealth and actually, you know, building uh, some resilience into your, your own personal bubble, your family bubble, your community bubble by being able to absorb shocks to the system, um, you know, and, and when you, when you realize that you can, you know, you can win a tax argument online, what, I mean, that's one of the most heated debates between left and right politics. And it took one post. Yeah. It's gotten and, so bad where I don't even read people's stuff on LinkedIn. I just copy their entire comment. I say, give me a counter argument. I don't even read the output of chat GPT. I just reply with it. Wow. <laughs> like I don't read, I don't read a damn thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm reading more from asking specific questions to stuff that I need to know using chat GPT. That's the, that's the other part of it. You know, it, I don't I don't want to sound like, oh, my God, AI is this you know horrible thing that's been unleashed on the on the world. Um, it's got some incredible use. Uh, I've been playing around with it for understanding uh, some more, I guess, deeper level electronics and, and some stuff that can you know, happen with, with different, uh, combining different circuits. Uh, I've played around with it. I have no background in coding outside of programming like C plus plus for firmware. Um, and I've been playing around with, uh, you know, building web pages with Java embedded in it. Um, you know, and, and I'm not saying it's anything spectacular, but it's enough to actually, you know, it, I'm not just like blind posting the stuff out there. I'm going through and trying to understand how it works. So it's kind of like a shortcut to the learning process. You know, when you've got, you know, and, and Pat and I have talked about this before, 
Java is such a complex language now with so many different iterations of development. Um, you know, being able to shortcut that that insurmountable wall of information, like where do you even start learning how to program? Yeah. Um, just jump in, ask it to ask it to show you how to do a task. And then take that and break that task down and understand the components. Now you're learning. You're not. You're not learning a body of information. You're learning relevant information out of a much much larger body of information. That's um, right. And, and if I can add on to that, um, sometimes I like to learn really complicated things in data science. For example, I'm not going back to school for data science. I'm not paying that money. No way. Um, I'm not going to sit there and learn linear calculus or linear algebra. I'm not going to do all that stuff. I'm going to say, Hey, ChatGPT. Tell me this data science term. Now write me code in JavaScript that does what this does. Now explain to me in simple terms how this works and then give me three examples of how to use it. And ChatGPT will generate all of that. It is a shortcut to learning like you, would, you wouldn't believe. Yeah, I've been doing basic stuff with it. Just basically doing like refining arguments that that's all I've been using it for. Um, Try having it write a grant proposal for you. <laughs> no, no. Well, the, you know, he, he tried that I'm, on I'm me. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah, you, you tried that on me uh, via Signal. And I don't know, something about the precision about it was just like, this doesn't sound like me. No. Oh, <laughs> you, can, you can modify the prompt to make it sound more like someone you want it to sound like. Yeah. Um, what was that, like a month ago? Month and a, yeah, month, month and a half. It was, I mean, it was like day two, day three that it first came out. We were already like, oh my gosh, we can use it for this, this, and this. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I mean, it was like it, it, chat GPT for, for anybody that understands like that it's not this thing to be feared. Chat GPT was like Christmas morning. Like, oh my gosh, I can do everything with this. It's, yep. it's, uh, what's his name? Um, Jarvis from, from Iron Man. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the only thing I haven't, ha haven't had happen yet is getting hit with the fire extinguisher. <laughs> G give me a week and I'll get that built. <laughs> do, do you think it's possible that the architects are going to be, or maybe platforms can modify? But let's just say that the, I don't know, maybe there's just such a high level of manipulation that maybe some architects might be able to put in, you know, identifier that this is potentially an, an AI you know, arguing with you or... You mean like a watermark? Yeah, like a watermark. We, we found ways around that already. Um, ChatGPT natively speaks Base64. So if you ask your questions in Base64, we blow past all its watermarking and we blow past all of its AI safety features. Wow. Yeah. Some nerd figured that one out. <laughs> so, so, what, so I know we talked a little bit about it yesterday. So the fear is, is that this mechanism is going to make a lot of people obsolete. And, and what's the blow? What I'm seeing is it's making everyone I know super productive. Uh, all the coders I know, they have it open all, all like 24 hours a day. They just say, you know, write this. Like they, if you can organize your code in a series of steps, you say, hey, write me this step, write me this function, write me this one-off thing. And then it stitches it together and you have a program. Like, um, I, I'm using it to, to learn. I'm using it to code. I'm using it to write tremendous amounts of marketing material, which you, usually would take me all the time in the world. Uh, now I just say, okay, well, people come to me. I want to market a product. I say, go through these steps. If you don't feel like doing it, go through ChatGPT, absorb the content, get a whip. I'm having this thing write rules for games. 
like the hell. And so, so any creative whim I have, and I'm, a, I'm actually a really creative person at heart, um, I can fulfill pretty much instantaneously. It's unlike anything I've ever used. Yeah, so, it's a new uh, medium. In terms of people getting replaced, um, well, Hollywood's going to have a little bit of a problem for sure. Uh, copywriters may have some issues. But at the same time, the amount of creativity this thing's about to unleash is going to be a real competitive space for starters. So marketing is going to be even more important. Uh, and persuasion, persuasive AI is going to be even more important just to cut through the noise. So uh, I think we've given everybody uh, the means to be Da Vinci now. Everyone's Da Vinci now. So that's going to create a very hyper-competitive space, which is going to yield some amazing results if we navigate it correctly. Yeah, I, uh, so right now it's lobotomized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The consumer facing one's lobotomized, yeah. That's the AI safety layer. It's, so, I mean, but even then it still has some significant use. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, you know, the, the lobotomized part of it was because they, you know, the people that, that were in control of putting safety features and stuff like that and are just like, oh my God. This literally can do everything. What do you What do you do with you know when something can do that much? Um, you know because you're you know you you've got to figure out how to how to mitigate the the potential for that much damage being unleashed all at once. It's given another week or two, and some kid's going to figure out how to essentially take the the pre trained and then bypass it by you know adding in some some sort of module or something like that. You know, it's it, it's not going to be hard to, you know, to counteract it. I mean, it, the thing is, is outside of the the amount of compute and and processing needed to train it, um, you know, it's it, I I can I can run it on a a small ARM processor or a small GPU. It's not a, a it, it's the it's the pre-trained models, um, and this is kind of where I went into with uh, I had started telling you a little bit yesterday about the. Um, wrote a paper about the unintended consequences of censorship in regards to when you're, when your training, training data is biased in a specific direction, it's not, your AI isn't going to even know that there's a second half of humanity that exists. If all your training data is from censored material, uh, it, it's, it, it is going to literally have this, this vacuum, you know, and so the unintended consequences of that, and, you know, it's not necessarily on our side. Yeah, everybody was real happy that, you know, Trump was no longer allowed to talk on the Internet or, uh, you know, you know, some of his supporters got, you know, sidelined. And, you know, so it reduced the the noise from the right side of politics a little bit. And everybody was real happy about that. Um, you know, in, in censorship in, in historical context uh, is usually pretty effective about silencing your opposition. But when you've got somebody that's training an adversarial AI on all of the material that's available and half your population is silenced, either out of actual censorship or fear of being censored, well, guess what that adversarial AI is trained on? Everybody that you were out there trying to champion, it just locked in with 10 times more precision because that's right. there wasn't a counter argument available. You know, yep. and the same thing with the science, uh, you know, the I mean, public discourse is is one, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. What happens when you're not allowing a, a complete picture 
of scientific debate, scientific debate to occur. Um, you can very, very rapidly head down the wrong path with some pretty catastrophic consequences if you're not allowing somebody to actually speak up and say, hey, you know, maybe we should actually rethink this. I'm seeing this in, you know, this equation. Uh, you know, and it, and it you know, I'm, th I'm thinking most people are thinking, you know, in terms of like climate change and stuff like that. Now, uh, we just got done showcasing that we had a, a net zero or I'm sorry, a net positive gain uh, for fusion reaction. What happens when, you know, something like that, you don't have a, a dissenting view to, to warn you away from something, you know, great. Now you run a, a increased risk of opening up a black hole somewhere in, you know, suburban Ohio. Just because, you know, your your test facility wanted to censor dissenting views because it might affect your, uh, you know, your, your grant money or something like that. Um, you know, it's it's going to the censorship is going to have some pretty disastrous consequences in the future. And it's going to uh, pressure a lot of interesting adaptation as well. Like one of the things I don't trust psychological AIs at all, like therapy AIs. I am not trusting that. Nope. Because I know how they, they have trained. I know what that AI safety layer looks like. I know all the ways you can game it. So I'm not trusting it. But I will trust an AI that I train myself. So now we can have an open source AI movement where I will take all of my tweets, all of my blogs, all of my Facebook posts, use that as a corpus, pick a time range like before alcoholism, like the time before I was serious in the alcohol, train on that. And now I have a psychological mirror of myself that I can talk to about my problems that I can trust because it's my words. It's my reasoning. I'm just spitting it. It's just giving me my perspective from 20 years ago when I was straight edge, when I was all these things, when I was much more disciplined and everything. So I think if uh, when you have uh, people who time, you know, time breaks everybody. And I think if you can roll back the clock to 20 year old you, maybe younger you, maybe there's a different reasoning. And because it's you, you know, maybe it can help you get some clarity on some stuff too. Josh, yeah, what does that feedback loop look like? So if right? you train it on, if you train it on yourself, twenty years in the future, that's literally the the equivalent of, okay, if I'd known this twenty years ago, would I have made these decisions? So right. now, you, now you can now you can introduce a third AI that's based off of the pre-trained model of, of twenty-year-old you interacting with forty-four-year-old real you, and that digital model ingest that information and now you've got a now you have the alternative version of you that you can actually debate with like hey this is the direction i ended up this is the path that you ended up so you're actually you're, you're playing quantum games with your option tree right there that's right and so you see when you when you can see and touch and poke at other versions of you i think that might have some useful therapeutic uh, application and because of the censorship that's going to exist it drives people into training their own ais uh, which this has an accidental outcome. This is when censorship is driving people to be psychologically sound somehow uh, when they're taking control of their own uh, psychological mirrors. Yeah, that was, uh, so there's a, a group that I work with, um, Dr. Julie Mossbridge. Um, she has an interesting term called temperaceuticals. So they're using mm -hmm. time as a healing mechanism. Mm -hmm. And one um, of the applications that we're attempting to uh, retrofit for the DOD, or at least like the active duty side of things, is a thing called time machine. It just uses mental time, uh, yeah. mental time travel narratives. So you essentially go into a recorder. Um, you can record messages to your future self or your past self, and there's various prompts, and then you can move into 
like uh, the garden and give yourself different types of um, messages and you'll receive those messages as if it were like a novel part of you, like from either the future or from yourself, or you can hear other people's messages. Um, and they have a team that is able to do all that where it's, I guess it's as safe as it can, it can possibly be not, you know, everything, there's a vulnerability to everything, but for the most part, um, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool tool. Um, yeah. but this, that's what you just explained is super serious. Yeah. There's a lot you can do. Uh, it, I can only imagine because again, therapy and trust are essential. Um, and I don't trust anybody. Uh, but I will trust the psychological mirror that I've trained. And I, I don't know what impact that would have for PTSD soldiers, uh, talking to a version of them that wasn't in the military, uh, talking to a version of them that, I don't know, maybe an older version of them. You could simulate where it's going. You could show them. Um, just having, having access to your own grammar fed back at you is, is incredible. We've never had that before. Yeah, one of the yeah. With that said, um, one of the other uh, components that I was looking at was kind of like a science of memetics, right? So we have all this indoctrination. How much of that indoctrination has? I mean, it's become biology, right? It's it's, it's entangled in this psychological self. How do you retrofit or, or rewire that programming? And I always give the example of you know the, the the mission of the Marine Corps Rifle Squad, which is to locate, close with, destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver. I mean, you're essentially overriding your self preservation. How right. does that fit? You know, you know, I did four years and 10 months and three tours um, through a very important developmental uh, time period. You know, I was 17 when I went into the pulley program and then I was 22 on my third tour. So it's like, it's embedded in me, right? So how do I retrain my brain hmm. or that specific meme uh, into something that's productive, right? Right. And I, I don't think, again, you know, with AI, I think, or at least this kind of like chat GPT, I think this is like a, a primer for something that's a lot more robust rather than what we're seeing right now, because we're, we're still, we're still dealing with, you know, moral injury. And I think now, you know, with like the department of veteran affairs are doing some pretty interesting work with genetics and they have the, uh, I think it's called like the million man it's like the million man program where they essentially they're tapping into the genetic spectrum to see who is um, predisposed to trauma. But it's kind of odd because 80% of Americans have experienced some type of traumatic event. And, you know, you can get into the discussion of whether that's a big T trauma or a little T trauma, but also depends too on, on, I guess the, the level of fitness of what you deem as something traumatic. Um, um, and then oddly to add on to that, they've created what they call the Genesis program and the Genesis program, basically um, it's contending right now because they have a lot of like low recruitment, but essentially the Genesis program basically says that you're good to go. But if you have a predisposition, uh, some type of waiver, then you're not going to be allotted service connected uh, compensation as a result of that predisposition. So there, and again, I think it was $303 billion that the VA spends specifically. Yeah. On, yeah. They need that money. So yeah, exactly. Can so, you yeah. guys hear me? Can you guys hear me now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank God. Um, <laughs> no, I just wanted it. I just wanted to, a lot of this shit you guys talk about. Is so like 
over my head, but I, I'm, I'm very entertained by this, not entertained. I, I'm, I'm open to all of this. And I had a few points just, I wanted to questions really that I wanted to, to bring up to you. Um, one point about you being like, how can AI help psychologically someone struggling, especially veterans? There's a huge problem with guys that are struggling coming forward, even just to talk to a homie, like on a platform like this, right? Like that, that's a hard thing for them. I don't know that that, maybe far down the line could be useful in some way but you know we're all we're all having a rough time bringing the walls down i think so something something very interesting you know for anyone that has deployed or served the country and and been in a combat zone or you know a third world situation is just how different life is there right like that's it's you know they kind of teach you or, or train you on this somewhat is like culture shock and what can happen when you're immersed in this different situation that maybe you didn't even perceive could exist right so something with the, the ai that like i've been thinking about just hearing you talk about this is like that's america too there's very rural places that they're still in the 70s 80s and technology to them is is you know still back then like they're farmers they're people that don't rely on things like most people in you know urban areas would or so i i'm just like envisioning this huge issue where not like a class war but but basically like that where you have developed urban areas you know what is it it's moore's law right where like computing power doubles every 18 months or or roughly right so if this is happening in cities at this rate but then you still have central america the south you know different areas of our country that aren't on board maybe not on board with this but just don't know about it because they're living their life like how does that because yeah, when you humans almost end up with like like temporal warfare in the sense of like You've got, you know, you're, you're, you're either fighting something that's 20 years advanced or you're fighting people that are 20 years behind you, um, which isn't necessarily a, a, an advantage. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing to think about is just because you have advanced technology doesn't guarantee that you've got the, uh, the ability to win when somebody decides to go low tech, um, Right, you know, 20, 20 uh, years of war in Afghanistan taught us that one. I think you can use rudimentary yeah. tactics, and you I, know, I, I, I would debate whether or not we actually learned that lesson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Jesus. Let's keep learning that's, it. That's you know, that's that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> Tyler, you, your your question about um, specifically in regards to to therapy, I want to I want to take a step backwards to what you you led with because. Um, I've got a friend, uh, who has a relative that served in, in a, uh, um, <laughs> beyond, beyond the edge, uh, beyond the tip of the spear, kind of a, kind of a, a scenario, um, where as a result of that, the majority of what he did was classified at a level that there was a hugely limited amount of uh qualified medical personnel that he can even talk to about ptsd 
Like, mm-hmm. like how, how exactly does somebody who's been on classified missions uh, find a, a treatment specialist? You know, they're, they're still, on, it's, it's not even that they're under NDA. It's that the, the stuff that they did is, is still classified to the point where um, there's not a medical professional that they can legally go talk to right. and disclose what they need to actually talk about. Um, AI therapy that's mirrored off of you or even, you know, or, or that you participate in building that, that training data, um, both as a, a reference point for like before mission, uh, I'm trying to remember the movie. Um, they, uh, they essentially, they, they have to go in and sit and get interviewed. I, actually it was, uh, the, the second, um, Blade Runner. Uh, he goes and gets interviewed to make sure that, you know, he's, he's still cognitively fit to perform, uh, the function as a police officer. So they're, what they're doing is they're measuring, uh, like response metrics, stuff like that. Um, you could very easily, uh, take a system like that and use it to measure before and after, uh, a mission to, you know, cat early catch, uh, you know, early onset PTSD, Hmm. um, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, trauma sustained in a, in a blast to where, it, you know, if you can intervene before it reaches the point where, uh, you know, let's say that the, that neural pathway calcifies to the point where it's going to be harder to defeat later on because it's kind of ingrained in you, whether it's a physical injury or, or a psychological injury. Um, I see tools like this where, where you can, you can run it off of a, a sipper like, uh, intranet. Um, you know, where, where it's not connected to the internet, where you can actually interface with it. Now you have a, a secure means that is mm-hmm. duplicatable at a, at a, this, this goes into what Jose and I were talking about uh, yesterday afternoon after the uh, first part of the recording. Um, when you're actually able to enhance medical professionals by, you know, by mirroring what they do with technology in a way that doesn't replace them, but allows maximum coverage so that they can actually triage what needs to be triaged instead of spending all their time uh, doing initial triage. That triage is already done. They know that the person they're going to sit down with actually needs their help. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you know, in turn, you can actually train to some very, very, very specific things because you don't have to be a generalist anymore. You know, you don't have to be a generalist to, to catch the, the fine details. And when you're juggling back and forth between being a generalist and a specialist, you usually start slipping at some point. You know, right. so the, the longevity of that career, you know, you're you're and, and you're going to see that in burnout. I would say that that tools like this can absolutely be developed that are going to make a significant impact in mental health. But it's going to have to be done in a way that that reinforces trust. You're not going to want it connected to the Internet. You're going to want some sort of oversight into the model that's, you know, the model of mental health that's being trained. Um you know, there, there are some really effective models out there that are pretty manipulative, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, a mental health professional that, that convinces a, a 13 year old kid, uh, for gender reassignment surgery or something like that. Um, you're talking about some major public debate over whether, you know, that's even, you know, not even legal, but ethical, hmm. uh, do you, you know, so, so you want to make sure that, um, you've got a pretty open, 
understanding of what exactly you're doing to intervene in somebody's mental health. The other part of that is you want to make sure that that's being done by trusted professionals because it's really easy to put some stuff in there that can make things go real sideways real fast. Um, you know, you you don't you don't want to build an AI system or, or have somebody you know contracted it and get something interjected into it and you end up turning your your tier one operators into uh, Manchurian candidates. Uh, yeah, and and this is something that Jose early on when we were started chatting had brought up. You know, this concept he has. I'm not gonna really air out anything or or details about it, but you know, if you have these devices on people that read biofeedback, right? And you're talking about active duty individuals that are in operational status conducting missions to try and learn how we can prevent follow on issues. How do you keep that data safe, right? Or how do you keep someone from hijacking that and then making Don't give it to OPM? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. was that out loud? <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I think trust. So, what I mean, obviously, both you and Pat are, are saying like trust is the big issue, and that is the issue with you know, human to human. The, yeah. the only reason me and Jose have been able to do this is because we know each other. We trust each other. We have a background. Mm -hmm. We, we have operated in the same areas. So we know, and we've been through similar situations. So we know, you know, what worked for you, what worked for you. Okay. This is where I fucked up. Okay. We're humans. So how do you, how do you trust? I mean, like Pat saying, if I had a secure network or ability to, like record a previous version of myself or go like somehow go back. You kind of like are debriefing yourself after a mission, right? If I, before mission, I go and upload and be like, this is what I'm thinking about. It can read anything about me. Then I conduct the mission, come back and it can tell me where like the inconsistencies are or where I'm, I is a potential for, you know, me, me shifting in the wrong direction that might work but you would have to like that would have to be the most secure yeah well know. the the security element this is this is um there's security by obscurity and there's security by futility nobody talks about security by futility it works like this um let's assume a state actor like china already has direct access to nsa trunk and fiber and it's just collecting everything it's collecting everything going through the pacific it's going through everything through the atlantic it's collecting every phone call every text message everything china can technically reconstruct the linguistic identity using these llms of any american right now they could do it right now so in terms of trying to keep that information safe that's gone so at this point um privacy as security it's no longer a concept uh, you just have to assume that your 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 near peers already can do this, uh, and that you have to use the tools better than they're using the tools against you. Hmm. So I think it's safe. Well, I don't even say it's safe to say, but um, I so I don't I don't think so. This so this goes to like Susan Blackmore, right? Um, Treams, technological memes, right? The the mitochondrion. Uh, effect right where are we working for it or you know it's, it's what is it this is endosymbiotic relationship right 
or it's just going to envelop us at some point or another. <clears throat> How do you remain, you know, authentic to your bio network, right? Um, so uh, maybe, maybe this is my, maybe this is poor human programming, but I don't think that certain mechanisms of what we call mental health or therapy uh, should be solely given up to technology or artificiality, uh, yeah. meaning that I can use a, the mechanical system and the aggregation to better assist me in something that I'm already traditionally doing, which is, all right, I see that. All right. So to say I got a wearable biometric that's pinging off that, you know, for, you know, two days, you know, Polly's been red flagged his inconsistent sleep patterns, his inability to hydrate, uh, and you know, just inconsistent. So then I'm going to go to him and be like, Hey, what's going on? But it's also something there, you know, I'll just say it now. So is it possible that we could get a baseline for an entire year to measure someone's weather and see not just the, the regular biofeedback, but also the nutrient and the epinutrient um, uh, trails that a person has. So we can take a portion that say that, you know, through May, from May to like July, that was my best, uh, that was the best time that I was making the best decisions. That was my best performance. And then retrofit that to a highly individualized health and wellness protocol that accounts for uh, degradation of the person's biology, right? So I'm not going to be the same person. So I'm, I'm not going to be the same. I'm not going to be, you know, this 30 year old me at the same time, you know, I'm headed into like 37 or something like that. Right. So how, how does a system like that keep up with? Um, so how do we go ahead and get like the best uh, portion of that without compromising? so that we don't have to rely entirely on a mechanical feature, right? So I don't, I don't, oh, go ahead, Pat. I, uh, two answers to that. The, the first is that requires a tremendous amount of sensory devices. Um, if you're collecting that many different types of outputs and signatures of behavior, especially biological stuff, that doesn't, assuming invasive even is on the table there, um, there still is, is a monumental task of just sensory input alone, just collecting all that stuff. Now, the second point is that because the sensory requirement is so high, that's going to be a bar to entry for cost. So what you want to do is, um, while the militaries of the world may be tilting in this direction, uh, you may also want to go towards more concierge service. So, for example, that type of performance measuring, uh, pro athletes are already doing that. And so are CEOs, surprisingly. Uh, CEOs actually do this type of biometric capture to improve their decision-making process as part of their uh, executive insurance package, surprisingly enough, most mm -hmm. people don't know that exists, but uh, executive insurance is a thing. So if you go concierge, uh, you will get smaller sample sizes with higher impact and much more funding than you may get from uh, grants and whatnot. Gotcha. Yeah, no, um, the hope was not to go down the grant route. In fact, I think there was a, actually, I think there, I think this past, of winter, I think in November, th there was a, and it was like $20 million. They're going to give $20 million who could like create the best program or initiative to come up with the best suicide prevention program. Um, 
but I wasn't even going to, I wanted to, but I, I still have, I, I, I have a high fear. Um, and I just fear a lot that a lot of this stuff is going to get weaponized. I mean, everything's already weaponized. It's just assume it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're looking I mean, into, we're looking into building LLMs of high value targets, uh, where we can conduct interrogation simulations on the, on the LLM, just, just trial run, just see what works, what doesn't. Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah, that's not necessarily a bad thing, though. Um, no, right. You know, again, it's a, it's a tool. Just it's because cool. something's weaponized doesn't make it, again, it doesn't make it good or bad. It's the motive behind how it's being used. Right. Um, which, again, uh, you know, we don't need AI ethicists. We just need ethicists uh, to, you know, have those conversations right. about, you know, hey, is this actually the right way to do this? Um, and then are you allowing for dissent to make sure that you're building a good, solid counter argument and not walking yourself into extinction? Yeah. You know, the and, and uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll defer to Pat on, on this one, but the, the lack of uh, Christians in AI ethics um, oh. should oh, be alarming and it's not even discussed. It is a disaster. Mm. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Oh yeah. So, um, oh man. So I had uh, I had the joy of dealing with uh, one of the Google whistleblowers, uh, Zach Voorhees, some time ago when he went public. He smuggled out 900 documents of how Google works. A lot of it AI work. I got my face on that and devoured it whole, and I understood how they were doing their um, how they're doing their censorship. Uh, they were using lists, but they're also using embedded vectors, which is some math nerd stuff. Uh, basically, they were playing with the associations of words at the machine uh, at the machine learning layer. And when I was going through all of that, I noticed that they were citing AI ethicists for the reliability of this technique. Um, it's called debiasing. When you when you debias something you are basically making the normalized gamble that you are targeting the largest amount of good. Meaning you can't actually, if you do a debiasing technique, you don't have precision. It's like carpet bombing. Uh, you're just saying that my carpet bombs fins are better than previous techniques. That's basically all you can hedge on. So you say, well, we're covering all of these word associations that we think are causing radicalization. Um, and we're not causing too much um, collateral damage in the linguistic space. That's basically all these arguments, these debiasing arguments are about. And I noticed who they were pointing to. They're pointing to IEEE. They're pointing to all these groups. And I noticed the strangest pattern in all these AI ethicists. They were, they were Muslim. They were Shinto. They were Buddhist. They were Jewish. They were Hindi. They were every religion in the world. Not a lot of Christian. Didn't see a lot of that. That was cute. Now, Shinto probably, Shinto's probably one of the best candidates for that type of stuff, just the way they think, the way they go about um, dealing with the other. It's actually pretty pretty good for this type of stuff, surprisingly. Um, but there was no Christian representation in any AI ethics argument whatsoever. It was like, what is happening? Like, how are you going to do AI ethics without forgiveness? Like, <laughs> how do you intend to do this? This made no sense to me. <clears throat> all right so 
So in talking with Nate regarding just like chat GPT, there seems to be like a reset, right? Like kind of like this balance that now normal guys like myself, Polly or regular Joe Schmo, who has a general interest in, you know, some type of mechanical engineering can now compete and contend with the big dogs or just even completely push out the middlemen. Um, Gatekeepers are screwed. Can I right. can I backtrack just not to cut in Jose because <laughs> I, a lot of this is you know like I said before I'm just it's foreign to me. So Chat GPT. Can you explain? Is am I saying that right? G. Yep. So for anyone listening that's a rock eater like myself, like if they wanted to mess around with this, like you're saying, like can you just expand on what what it is and how you can use it? For the normal, normal, you know, the layman. Yeah, you use your autocomplete on your phone, yeah? Right. It's autocomplete, but like a thousand times faster. Okay. And it's, so and how do you access this? Like, how can the normal person? Go to chat.openai.com slash chat. And then just ask it whatever. That's it. Wow. Super simple. I'll send you some prompts, Polly. All right, dude, I'm going to, no, don't. No, uh, but, you know, that it's, it's, this is actually a really useful tool for, for, as you said, rock eaters. <laughs> yeah. Um, This is, so you, you, uh, you, you, you do uh family owned business, correct? Yeah, I'm a businessman. You know, okay. Believer. So you can, you know, if you're trying to improve, you know, an area in your business or you're not a specialist in a particular thing, but you need a service but don't necessarily have the budget for that service. Mm. Go on chat GPT and ask it for, you know, three examples of a plan to fix X, Y, Z. Um, and, yeah. and see what it comes back with. Yeah. And as you, as you ask it questions, you kind of, you're kind of learning, you're teaching yourself right. how to ask it better questions. Mm. Um, I, and it, this is actually to me, one of the most fascinating things about it for me is in watching how my question asking has evolved over the past month. Um, you know, it went from like my first interactions with it were literally like the the scene from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey with the monkey and the bone. Um, <laughs> the, like, like that is literally what I felt like picking up the, you know, picking up the keyboard and trying to, to type on this thing. I'm like, what do I even do with this thing? Um, but as I, as you learn to interact with it, and this is, there's, there's something that I think Jose will appreciate the, uh, this as much as Pat and I have talked about this a little bit too, but when you, you know, the, these, these AI tools are <clears throat> supposedly learning from us, right? You're, you you have that feedback loop where you've got your pre-training and then you've got your fine-tuning. And it fine-tunes based off of how you interact with it. We're doing the exact same thing to ourselves. We're fine-tuning ourselves to work with this technology. Right. And this is really what clued me into the potential for this because as you, you know, let's say that you you uh, train it on your, your own, uh, you know, online chat history and conversational history that you that you can get, you know, recorded and turned to text and and everything. Um, and you can then interact with yourself. Uh, you will be able to watch yourself learn how to be more effective at whatever it is that you're trying to teach yourself. So you can actually become your own teacher because now you're able to fine tune the communication so that you're talking to yourself in the absolute 
most optimized way possible. This is yeah. something no teacher in a classroom will ever be able to do. They can't, yep. you know, I don't care if they have two students, one student or 50 students, they cannot mirror adequately every single person in that classroom. So your, your kids that you can't reach for education, Jose, this is actually a really, really good tool yep. to help them catch up to speed. Have them just ask you questions like, hey, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding, uh, you know, this. And just have them, you know, have them keep asking it until it explains it in a way. Because mm -hmm. in AI, this is, uh, this is the, the um, what is, I'm trying to remember the example, and I think it was fiction, but it was essentially the, the absolute tireless pedagogue uh, <laughs> that it will never tire of you yeah. asking it the same question again and again and again in different ways. Until yeah. you under you finally get one that you're just like oh that finally makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a caveat. It is not a fact engine. No. So yeah. so, so ChatGPT does not have facts, right? It doesn't have knowledge of stuff. It is, it is a large language model. It is only producing the probabilistic likelihood of the next word appearing, and it just happens to be that when we do that, you actually do get a lot of knowledge from that approach. Um, but like, if you ask the precise amount of population in a city, it's going to give you the wrong answer. Mm. Um, you have to use a modified version of it called hugging face, which then ties into Wolfram alpha. And that will then get you fact integration, which is incredibly powerful because then you can ask it hard math questions and it's going to start solving. It. Yeah, that was one of the, uh, that's what I was like figuring out today. I started asking get, you know, um, can you give me references and citations and sources, primary sources? And um, it's it's hit or miss. Yeah, yeah it, it lies. It, it will like make fake sources. It'll make fake references. So so yeah, is that's... Wikipedia. So is, there, so is a random person on the street. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no different. Oh yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> so, Name's so... Haywood. <laughs> So I was going to ask, um, kind of like shifting gears, um, I don't know, I, I've listened to you for quite a bit, Pat, and just like some of your like Dark Stoa um, YouTube hits and whatnot. And um, I think one of the, uh, there's a... Go ahead. There you go. I tend to fuck shit up from time to time. Ah, this technology. Yeah, Semper Fi. <laughs> Semper Fi. Semper Fi. No, that's, that's the new Marine Corps. Um, the, uh, so the... <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah, dude. Don't take that away from me, man. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the, the, the wealth is under a tremendous amount of duress. This isn't at all feel bad for the wealthy. There's nothing to feel bad about. If they fuck it up, it's on us, right? It's their decisions tumble down to us. Shit goes downhill, right? This is nothing to do about pity. Uh, it's the, the institutions that you know, we were raised to serve or raised to be a part of, and they don't really exist anymore, right? And so what do people do? Well, I know what I'm doing. I'm I'm pivoting to where the water takes me, where the winds take me, and that's marketing. Because when in a world of hyper competitive creative talent that's unleashed, marketing is going to be the key determining factor. So I'm very much all in on that. <clears throat> what do the institutions do? 
I hope they burn personally. I've I've spent 30 years dealing with overeducated, haughty, self-appointed eunuch janissaries who just swear they're the perfect human being because they know an extra 20,000 words than the average person. Uh, and they lord that ego over people. And I, I look forward to their collapse just from an emotional release standpoint. Uh, in terms of what opportunity does it bring? Well, let's just say if I have ChatGPT trained on the entire corpus of law dating back to Roman maritime law, uh, I get a parking ticket. I start issuing a 400,000 page amicus to say, like, guess what? We're not having this ticket right now. The, the, the very foundation of law itself is probably the biggest biggest point of damage is going to happen because you could you could argue that a, a lawyer is just a is just a parrot all they're doing is reciting precedents and whoever can recite it the best wins that's the game lawyers play so whoever is the most retentive parrot and they're not beating chat gpt just not so um legal systems of precedents are really really under duress um, and because America was a country that was founded by a bunch of rowdy lawyers, well, democracy is going to have to get re-examined at some point. Hmm, how do I process that? Huh. It's, no, I mean, I'm not calling you an abolitionist, um, but I do hear no, a lot. No. Like, I hear a lot of, I mean, I hear a lot of abolitionist thought, you know, Burnt, you know, fuck it. The system's gonna come crashing down, and I guess where yeah. I'm, I'm worried is, you know, I'm in the trenches. I, I do a lot of field work, and it's like, fuck, if you know, yeah. what's left of a rules-based order completely crashes. It's like, and I know, you know, emperor, you know, empires, you know, they fall, but there's still some control or at least some some mechanisms that are still in place where. If you're able to, you know, move a community to be adaptive, then you can overcome a lot of things. But, oh shit, man. Um, <laughs> We're all paratroopers now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, again, I guess that's. I just got to go process that. Um, yeah. But again, I, and you know, again, my human fucking programming says no no to to failing or no to what could be and you know that just goes back to some of the experiences of being overseas and just seeing some of the states that those folks were in and it's just like god like it can't get that bad if it gets that bad yeah but but still i mean it doesn't it doesn't have to get that bad uh, i think it's yeah, just going to get weird i don't think it's going to get bad yeah i was just going to say i mean you know, everybody, everybody talks about like how, how bloated corporations are, right? You know, you've got, you know, you've got your, your senior management cumulatively between five people are making this, the exact same amount that the other, you know, hundred thousand employees that work for that corporation make combined. Uh, you know, so you free up, you know, you, you outsource the, the upper management to an AI that can do that job more effectively because it doesn't need a rest break. It doesn't go to the beach and hang out. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't get blackmailed on somebody's yacht. Um, guess what? You can hire 
half as many again, employees, and you're still clearing a higher profit margin. So, you know, the the idea that the, the system is going to come collapsing down, um, <clears throat> I think it's actually, it's only going to collapse so far. Uh, I, I think, you know, and, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to actually say this as kind of a neutral statement. I think people that are miserable now are going to be just as miserable in 10 years as they are now. Not really much is going to change for them unless they choose to take advantage of the opportunities that are now opened up because they don't have gatekeepers saying, yeah. no, you can't do this. There, there is no, you know, women, uh, there, there's no glass ceiling anymore. Guess what? You can mimic every male out there that holds the position that you think you're being held back from. And I guarantee you've got a higher chance of getting hired for that position just by doing that. Plus the fact that you're female. I know that programmers. Must... I know programmers yeah. who have three jobs simultaneously as a programmer from three different corporations using ChatGPT, collecting three programmer salaries right now. Wow. Yeah. Maximize your your capacity. Maximize your capabilities. I mean, this is this is human augmentation. This is this is the stuff that I I. This is this is where I dream is so, when stuff like this can happen. <laughs> So how do we differentiate, though, because I feel like everybody has this same mindset where it's like, you know, fuck the corporations, you know, mm -hmm. these people, blah, blah, blah. But then in turn, like, I, I feel like that same like thought process turns us against one another, like everyone's bad, you know, because. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. I mean, that's what, especially over the past couple of years since the pandemic and everybody's kind of been reclusive and like, I don't know who to trust or where to go. And then now these, you know, huge, big, you know, who's running this shit and everybody's all the wealthy or just they continue to get wealthy off of us. So now I don't like my neighbor anymore. And it's like, I'm not saying this from like a personal standpoint, but I, I deal with the public in yeah. my business so i know i see what the the climate's like when they come in and it's like no look you know trust me trust me i i will not disappear on you yeah. you know buy our product i'm here for you and i can earn their trust and i can and they believe it and it's almost like a breath of fresh air from them especially if they don't know what it's like working with you know our our business and I'm just like, what the fuck is going on out here to where like we don't trust anyone? And, um, and I'm I'm in that same boat myself, too, because I'm a consumer, too. Right. Like I deal with people and I'm like, they don't have my best interest in mind. Like if you're going to sell me something, I know you're not going to be the person I deal with if I have an issue with it. Right. So how do we how do we bring that back? How do we bring that back to when like my dad was a kid and your your community and your neighborhood was everything to you if you That's didn't right. have reliable people in your circle especially your individual bubble how did you 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 couldn't survive you yeah. wouldn't survive help me i'm i need a barn for hay the whole community helps and they build that barn for you yeah. and then now help me sow my seeds in the summertime okay like how do we get back to that to where we trust each other again and to where you know, I'm your shoulder too. Like, like Jose's my, my shoulder, right? Like, you know, not to get mushy and gay, but we are Marines. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, but I, I mean, I'm being, I'm being for real though. It's like, 
it's like where how did is that just gone forever i don't want to believe that no it no it's actually gonna get reinforced it's gonna get reinforced it's gonna get reinforced and recalibrated um what's a different frame okay i'm gonna i'm gonna actually say something and i think pat's gonna jump in uh when he when he sees where i go with this but um so going back to something we talked about a few minutes ago uh briefly um but symbols um what we're seeing right now it's it's not just it's not just the 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 wealthy it's not you know this it's not that we're seeing a symbol that we trusted was out there that you know as americans we were absolutely convinced that someday we were going to be a millionaire i think it was uh um it was a who was the french philosopher that said that that after visiting america he was like america is a land of everybody that's a future millionaire that's tem- that, it, was, tem- it was that level of optimism as a, as a, a temporarily embarrassed millionaire yeah um what 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 we're seeing right now is that that symbol of trust that you know hey if you work hard enough or you know or, or even if you're if you're cutthroat enough you can someday you're going to be wealthy um or someday you're going to someday you're going to be a gatekeeper you're seeing the whole model of gatekeeping collapse um, and it's been collapsing because what what are the what what is the the con- narrative conflict space been for the last three years? Trustworthiness of the gatekeepers, whether you know the, the the misinformation campaign, the you know and vice versa, like you know this is absolute truth, um, and and even the people that'll take a side don't necessarily trust what they're advocating for. They're they're second guessing. You know, gosh, maybe I, I'm boy, I really hope I made the right decision. You know, I'm going all in on this one. Um, you know, I've gotten 50 boosters for the for the vaccine, uh, you know, one a week for the last year just to make sure that I don't get COVID. And, uh, you know, that that kind of a mentality where it's like you you really that the the, the trust in institutions has been eroded and it's been replaced with uh, its own form of extremism. Um, and it's and it's actually really fascinating to take a step back and, and look at it from that perspective. But as as these trusted symbols are are the the veracity of them is has been undermined. Why has it been undermined? Um, I would actually suggest that it's the nature of the, the the what we placed value in in terms of those symbols undermined itself. Uh, we don't need gatekeepers. We need people who understand the people that are approaching uh, something, and it's you need a welcoming committee is what you need. You don't need gatekeepers. You need people that are like, oh, you showed up because you want to learn this? Man, this is going to be the best place in the world. We will give you every resource at our disposal to make sure Mm -hmm. that you have what you need. That's what a community used to be. You didn't have gatekeepers. You had, I mean, you might have had a, a, a blacksmith and a farmer and, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, but if you moved into a community, you were welcomed into that community. They, you know, and and, yeah. and, I, and I'm, I'm saying this, this is kind of a, a, you know, whitewashing history kind of a thing. Because there was conflict. There was, you know, hey, uh, we don't we don't allow blacks in this community. Or we don't allow Mexicans. Or, you know, if I show up in South Africa, uh, people are going to be like, yeah, we, we don't like your kind here. Um, you know, we, we don't like colonials, uh, you know, in being British in India, I'm sure had the, has the same effect now. 
Um, but the the honest truth is, is we actually have the capability now to bypass that stuff. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think everybody's comfortable with, you know, and if, you, if you're not comfortable with somebody of a different race, for crying out loud, go join the military and get yeah, yeah, yeah. people yeah. from every background. <laughs> exactly. I'm not, I'm not kidding. That was actually, I yeah. think that is one of the best things the military has to offer is it gets you, it gets you out of whatever, um, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, stereotype. Uh, yeah. it, it gets you to think past the stereotypes because you're going to yeah. be good people and bad people based off of their willingness to perform their job the way that it needs to be performed. Um, you know, and, and, and you can, you know, you can dislike somebody based off of whether or not they're going to be uh, intentionally effective at their job. I'm not talking about competency. I'm talking about somebody who's just absolutely negligent in their job, a 42 yeah. alpha. Um, you know, they, they've got the worst reputation in the army because half of them, you, you ask them a question, and they're like, well, I don't know. Can you find out the answer to that? I don't want to. It's that mentality. It's not, you know, you're not, you're not dealing with the demographics. So um, where I'm going with that, just to, to bring it back to what I was talking about, um, as, as those symbols that we place trust in, because we aspire to something higher are collapsing. We can still aspire to something higher, but we can actually reset to that community format that you were talking about, Tyler, because now we don't have this focal point of, you know, attrition is actually what it is. Not everybody is going to be a multi-billionaire. I mean, that's just, that's not the way that resource resources work. Um, you also don't need to be a multi-billionaire. You need to be good at what you do, take care of your responsibilities and your family, and you know, and and work together in your community to make your community better. You're talking about the ability to yeah. actually reset yeah. the grassroots level because you don't have people distracting you from what actually matters. So right. how do you? It, so just, I mean, I we just need to just grab what you just said and like put it on blast to the world and be like, this is advice for humanity, right? How do you so, how do you how do you make people understand what you just said right there though? It's it's a there's there's a phrase called parasocial. Parasocial means um, it's social, just like parallel lines, right? So parasocial means the social tribes you have that don't necessarily overlap, but you run alongside them. Mm. So take uh, online for example. Almost every interaction we have with people online is parasocial. I'm not in your community. Uh, I don't pay taxes that you then eventually receive benefit from. I'm not even buying goods from you, but we're here having a parasocial relationship. I was one of the first generations to build exclusively parasocial relationships. So you have my family relationship was not good. Uh, romantic relationships were meh, you can only do so much with autism. Um, and what's left is just a bunch of fellow nerds like me online all having parasocial relationships at the same time, going through the same pressures because we're part of the same society in general. And we have a lot in common just by the fact that we've all ran to online spaces to get away from the failures that was our meat space life. So those parasocial relationships form a kind of bond which has ultimately culminated in things like 4chan of all places. Uh, yeah, wild, ex uh, you know, people call it extremism, but I don't know, I see it as a band of brothers to be honest. It's just like a bunch of fellow rejects who just 
clocked out of life because life clocked out of them all forming a parasocial relationship and coming to roughly the same conclusions about a lot of stuff. Um, mostly just emotional trauma. But um, the idea is that anybody can form these parasocial relationships based on interest, based mm -hmm. on experience, based on symbols, based on any damn thing you want. Uh, it's if the, if the internet is not generating a, a parasocial community for you, then it's on you to be the leader to go make one. And I think that's how you get back to the muscle memory of community. It might not be the real community because yeah. you know, organically speaking, when people are sharing the same area, they have to share the same resources that are available. They have to figure out their problems and negotiate and all these types of things. There's no such thing as a resource limit online with the exception of attention. So a lot of the uh, parasocial relationships that form online are exclusively humans hunting other humans to capture the most attention. And those are the kind of tribes that are forming right now. But that doesn't have to be the only motive. There can be other motives. No, right. yeah, and there's and I love that though. I I don't feel there's nothing wrong. I think that's great. I think yeah. finding your finding your tribe. It's like wolf packs. You know, they're yeah. all wolves, but they all have their own people. They you know they're the same exact species. But I'm not going to linger off into your you know because I'm not. Maybe I would be welcome there, but I just don't feel like I need to go there. This is where right. I'm at. Yeah. And I think if everyone has that, I, I think there's just, I think there's happiness in that. Like there's joy, there's, there's purpose. There's, there is. you know, you know, your role and you find what, where you fit in. And I think that's just the key to so much, right? Is when you're lost, you're, what good are you? But when you yeah. can when you can do something for someone else or bring joy into their life or help them or whatever it may be like, that is truly why we're here, I think. And, yeah. you know, no matter what your beliefs are, whether you, you believe everything happens for a reason or whatnot, like, I, I think it's hard to argue against that, I think. Yeah. And the AI tools, the persuasion tools, it's, it's gotten only easier to make these groups. Uh, I'm, I'm part of hundreds of different parasocial groups. It really depends upon what day of the week, what am I interested in? Quantum yeah. physics Thursday, here I go. Let me go play with that tribe a little bit. <laughs> um, and so you can just jump between the tribes. There's no, there's no need for allegiance. I mean, there's no resource dispute going on. So there's no right. contractual binds, you know, stuff like that, traditional stuff. Um, but I, th I think it's, I think that layer keeps self asserting itself. It keeps, it keeps self-asserting. It keeps reforming even in a vacuum. And so I think that's a foundation you want to build off of. I would actually go, uh, something else to think about too, you know, as far as the, the, what do you do in meat space? Um, something I've been doing since about, uh, 2012, 2013, um, everywhere I've lived and, and this past year has been kind of an exception. Um, I've had a fire pit and yeah. it, man, I tell you what, I have never ever had a problem with my neighbors as long as I have a fire pit yep. because it's somewhere where everybody can come out, drink a beer, uh, you know, roast s'mores, their kids can go play, you know, and yeah. you know, kid, kids are going to go to do kids things. Anyway, kids are really, really efficient about building community. <laughs> um, yep. But, but, you know, adults, you know, you get set in your ways, uh, but just go get a, go get a cheap fire pit, put it in your driveway 
and invite your neighbors over for a beer on a Friday night. Seriously, and that shit you, works. You would be amazed at how quickly a community builds. Yep, absolutely true. I would do that in California. First, when I rented a house for the first time in California, we were like fire pit. Just it, I've never had closer friends in, in LA than when I had that fire pit. And they all left yeah. when I when I lost the fire pit. And them kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, it's it, it's something primal. It it, it yeah. matches that that sense of community when you've got something. I mean, you. I'm telling you, I have had the best revelations just sitting and staring into a fire pit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Same. I when I'm by myself, and that'll usually last for maybe five minutes to a half an hour, and then I guarantee you, somebody's going to see it. It's a beacon. They're going to walk up and be like, oh, you got a fire pit going on. Yeah. Grab a beer. Yeah. yeah. You know, it just, and it's, there is, there is no agenda. There is literally nothing but, but actual <laughs> heat death, actually. But we won't go, you know, hey, there's your existential dread creeping back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you can sit around, you know, you can sit around and watch the Death Star burn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you know, that's but it's it, it it's kind of this primal reminder that there is always um it's actually uh Peter Lindbergh from Dark Stoic, uh the way he introduces Dark Stoic is the, the digital fire digital camp digital campfire exactly it is exactly that, but do it in real life. Hmm. Yeah. You know, put put a fire pit out. If you've got guys that are having a hard time building community, tell them to put a fire pit out and just give it a month. Yeah, that's really good advice, actually. I mean, I know there is, like, like, what are you guys calling it? Meat, meat. Are you talking meat about space. people? Meat, meat space. Yeah. You're yeah, talking about space. physical <laughs> humans <laughs> that are okay. Yeah, I know there are gr- there are groups out there that do this, and like they actually have these retreats where they go do this kind of shit outdoors. And it's like, yeah, I mean, fire's magic. Real, real fire. When you like, everyone's mesmerized by it, right? And it just, yeah. I don't know. It's only, yeah, it's like a. It itself is the social lubricant, right? Because everybody's just kind of like staring into this thing where it's like, how is this happening? Like, how is this flame like happening? What is plasma? Yeah, Yeah, like we understand it, but it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is. Maybe that is somewhere deep down in us that I think it absolutely is. If you're around that, maybe it's just a tap like into when times were like like that was necessary for survival so whoever's around you at that time it's just like you can maybe connect with them in a different way i don't know um god get moses yeah start a fire dude and i like i am uh i so i was a demo guy in the marine corps um and like (laughs) i'm a a self-proclaimed uh pyro uh but you know where the kids gonna learn how to be pyros if they don't get to experience fire so yeah. anyway that's wonderful <laughs> yeah i i if 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 where we lived wasn't just full of bugs in the summer like that we definitely would have had the fire pit yeah no it's uh i don't know i don't i can get pretty pessimistic about things and i know like talking to you guys because you know i think maybe your insight on where we're headed is definitely outside of what i think about on a daily basis and it's to a degree scares me because i'm like uh, how do you how do you prepare like how do you prepare when you don't know but i guess if you just 
keep on a path that you feel like you're you're working towards something, then then it's gonna probably just pay stay off. Fight. Yeah, all I gotta do is stay in the fight. That's it. Yeah, and it it don't let it get to you. I mean, we've we're 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 the apex of of our ancestors, uh, literally. Um, yeah, you know, you're 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 here for a reason, whether you recognize it or not. Uh, you know, and, and you can attribute it to divine reason. You can attribute it to fitness of evolution. Um, but it's, you know, that pre-selection process of, of getting to a point, um, you know, life has always been an assessment course. Uh, and you know, even the people to your left and right that you're like, man, how do you, how do you even survive brushing your teeth in the morning without stabbing yourself? Um, you know, they're, they too are are apex in regards to their ancestors everything has been built on something that was a little bit less efficient um when it comes to you know yeah there's a lot of change going on there's a lot of unknowns uh you know i'm trying to think of a a good analogy for this because it's right it's right there on the tip of my tongue um you you can you can get it you can get depressed about it you can let it get you down uh you know starting to feel defeated and stuff like that or you can kind of look at it as like man there's a whole lot of unknown but i know that the stuff that we've known really hasn't worked out great for everybody you know maybe maybe it is time for a little bit of a a reset um and you know and especially when you realize that you know 95 percent of the world will survive perfectly fine in terms of a, a collapse, when when that top tier collapses and it's only the top five percent, what what is actually vaporizing? It's a, I mean, we're our yeah. economy is based off of a fiat currency anyway. So what exactly is disappearing? I'm not really right. sure about that. Yeah, someone's ledger is disappearing. So, Meanwhile, the and, rest I, of the and world. I think that's that that's that symbol collapse. Is this is this is the the actual effect of of building something. That's- Inflated in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like a. Did we really expect something different? That's what they sold. I mean, they sold change, and that's what they said. They sold change. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you might have some soil loss as far as topsoil goes. That's easy to fix. You know, yeah. there is absolutely nothing out there uh, materially that's really going away. Yeah. It's just this this inflated concept of currency. That's been based off of borrowing against future generations anyway, right. because nobody could figure out how to deal with gold, uh, gold hoarding. Yeah, they couldn't you know, turn it off. Once you start learning at that level of scale of capital, you can't stop learning. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think it's just, uh, um, I think a lot of it, a lot of it is, is that not knowing and then automatically jumping to worst case scenario. But I mean, worst case scenario is probably one of the most exhilarating experiences in the world. We know that's from combat. Mm. You know, nobody, nobody in their right mind looks at combat and says, man, I'm going to do that for fun. (laughs) You know, it's, that's a, (laughs) (laughs) but yet you get, you walk out the other side of it with your buddies you know, and even if you even if you do take casualties, you look to your left and your right, and you're, and you're, and you're just like, "Damn, that was something else," <laughs> and you are fundamentally changed. This is kind of the same thing, you know, yeah. and and there's no reason to fear it because there's nobody's actually throwing bullets at it at us yet. 
you know, and, and I, I absolutely think that that can be avoided. Um, you know, they won't go kinetic. They'll go, they're using to go to the beginning of the conversation. Uh, they're definitely, um, they're doing cyber for sure. They're doing influence operations. They're doing that, a lot of that, but that's cause it's cheap, right? They're not doing that because it's their preferred means of conflict. They're doing it cause it's the cheapest one. Yeah. Cause their economy is based off of the same thing. Yeah. And ours. <laughs> They're they're just as damned as we are. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's all yeah. soft war. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of switching tracks here a little bit, and I don't know if we need to go down this rabbit hole, but like something that just blew my mind the other week. I was, I was in like, I was in down in Charlotte. I'm, I live in North Carolina. I was down in Charlotte, and I was like driving through the art district, and like I couldn't help but notice like so many of the homes had ukrainian flags fr- like flying on the front porch and a, a, the majority of them a lot of them didn't even have any american flag like visible and i just was like what is going on here because not to assume but i i would assume that these are the type of people that would not be backing any type of like american conflict at all no, whatsoever all. and i'm like what like what I was just kind of like blown away by it. My brother was with me and we were talking about it. I was like, dude, this is in- absolutely insane. What yeah, this yeah, it's is. Like having a, it's like having a Dallas Cowboys flag or a, a uh, Miami Dolphins flag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just like, dude, why? Like, why? They don't, they wouldn't, like, if you're anti-war, just be anti-war across the board, right? Not, no, no, no. Nah. There's, no, there's, there's no consistency here. It's, it's performative current thing. That's all it is. Yeah, it just kind of blew me away. I was like, "Man, what? Like, what are we? We're not even thinking for ourselves." Yeah, well, that's narrative, narrative effectiveness. Yeah, how, exactly. how many people can you? How many people can you get to jump on the current thing? It's. Yeah. I, I mean, and that that ultimately, it's the. This is the. It's, it's outside the Big Ten greatest show on earth kind of stuff. Like that's that's what Ukraine is. Yeah, it's that's, a, a, that's the only. That's the only way you can sell it. Because it's too complicated of a conflict. You're not going to educate the average American about what Ukraine actually was for all of NATO, um, what, why it was red line in the sand for pretty much the entire Cold War. You're not going to school up people on Russian ambitions in that space. And you're not going to school them up on American ambitions on that space. The only thing you're going to school them up on is they're fighting the empire like Star Wars. That's so it. let's so let's buy a bunch of Ukrainian flags made in China. <laughs> yeah, you know so. exactly most simplified narrative you can push out there that already corresponds to grammar that has already been programmed into them for the past 30 fucking years. That's it. I, was, I mean, I, was, I would still be nice to him if I saw him on the street. Yeah, of course. <laughs> There's no need to be a dick about it, but I mean, no, their psychology is explainable. Yeah, they're predictable. Actually, if, if nothing else, count that part as a blessing. Yeah, it's a symbol right. of predictability. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, but that's all. That's that's a different type of narrative campaign. That's like whole scale civilization narrative operations, where it's like long term stuff, where you can't just like drop a meme and call it a day. That's where you like you have to like strategically analyze all the cultural inputs of a place identify what they resonate with, look at the charts, look at the numbers, look at the kneeling ratings, look at all the classic ways you can do uh, media dissection 
and align every one of your policy goals, tensions, and outcomes with each one of those cultural events over two generations. And then that's it. You basically run the entire culture war front. Easy as that. Easy as that. Hmm. <laughs> <But> guess what? <laughs> you can co-opt it now with chat GPT. <laughs> yep. Yep. You just got to identify what uh, political bases controlled a lot of narratives of obviously Hollywood, uh, mostly California Democrats dating through the 70s and up. Uh, they have all the ins with you know, all things movies, 14 years in L.A., so I've, I've seen it all. Um, and all the media operate. There's only like a handful of districts in America where media operations can even hit that kind of scale. So you only need to really get like 10, 20 Congress critters on your payroll, and that's it. Basically, can run a full time narrative operation. So, I could ask like Cat GBT, like, what are the potential risks of eating inbred chicken meat? It could probably give you something. If not, it will definitely bullshit its way through. <laughs> All right. Hang on. I'm interested because that was that was a question <laughs> I had last week. You know, we got a chicken problem over here. We got and, inbreeding uh, chicken. <laughs> I don't know. You know just Actually, random, I don't know that either. Random dumb question. So we're gonna find there's, out. There's no dumb question though. That's what I was. Not for this thing. Not for this thing. Hold on, cool. I'm interested. It's bad about eating inbred chicken. Oh, we're gonna answer this right now. This is it. oh yeah. All right. Consuming inbred chickens is, can be harmful because they are prone to genetic abnormalities and diseases, which can result in lower quality of meat, pose a potential health risk to consumers. Additionally, inbred chickens have lower immunity and may be more susceptible to disease outbreaks, which can have negative impacts on food safety and overall food security. Not bad. General answers. You know, nothing specific. But sure. I, I am so disappointed because so this is exact same question. Let me read my answer. Yeah. Consuming inbred chicken meat may lead to ingestion of harmful chemicals or toxins that are present in the chicken's flesh. This could potentially result in food poisoning or other health issues. Additionally, inbreeding can lead to reduced genetic diversity, which can result in lower quality and less nutritious meat. It is recommended to consume chicken meat from sources that prioritize proper breeding and good health practices for their chickens. Um that so was, it's uh, a dice roll. So it's the I, dice I apparently roll. have not asked it enough questions in detail about genetics yet. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I would. It, I mean, it, it'll always default to a hedging answer. So. Right. So in a pinch, the answer is eat it. <laughs> I mean, in a pinch, no. <laughs> <laughs> Got to survive, man. Substitute chicken with inbred neighbors. <laughs> anyway. We're not that far gone yet. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. We, I, had to I had to light. I had to lighten up the discussion a little bit. So. Sorry. Speaking of the discussion, we just hit the two two hour mark. Um, I don't know. I, I know. I, I want to be respectful of your time, Pat, especially you, Nate. Um, I don't want to hold y'all up, but um, if you want to keep it going, we can keep it going. Um, I don't know. I'm a I have a, I do have a phone call I have to jump on, uh, so I will have to depart shortly. Yeah, I well, mean, thank you. I, I actually, I, maybe it's useful to look at it this way, um, because I, we're, we're now at the point where this is an ever-present, uh, this is an ever-present environment everywhere. Um, 
you know, so maybe this is kind of a, a an opportunity to look at maybe having more of these conversations, um, and, and you know, ask ask your audience for for feedback on, you know, after getting red pilled, what is it that they want to understand about the environment that we're now living in? Um, yeah, you know, it's a it, it's the truth is is I think. Uh, it's a great opportunity to actually start having conversations about using this technology. Um, you know, Jose, I know you've been looking for, for solutions for some of these, uh, the problems that you encounter uh, between the veteran community and then uh, the work that you do in, in social work. Um, so maybe, maybe this becomes a, a way to think ourselves out of a box, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things, so I've looked at all the things that I've written up and I'm going, I'm using chat GPT to, to basically, Hey, refine this. Um, and then I'm starting to now look at some of the mental health stuff that was uh, enacted within like the past 10 years, specifically within trauma informed practices. Uh, th that's a term that likes to get thrown out and applied when a class or two is given. But the problem is, is that we have, well, how do you actually measure impact? And ah, mm. I know how to do that. Go ahead. So you had another question. No, no, no. Well, that was, that was, that was the thing, right? It's like, we're approaching the institution to be like, Hey, you know, have you considered these things? Um, there's a lot of influence taking place. There's a lot of impacts taking place. We can't see what's happening inside the population. Um, so to say, but we can see stress-related events. We can see um, how behavior has been impacted as a result of, you know, putting correlates to certain events and certain types of I/O campaigns. Um, and so my my point is is that bringing it up to them, explaining it to them has always been the issue. They don't, they're not speaking my language now. Right. Nate schooled me up. Now I have something to. To, to basically retrofit what I'm trying to say for them specifically, and maybe that's the way around it, right? I mean, it's it's getting the initial audience in order to take that's the time right. to say, "Hey, buddy, yeah, we get what you're saying. Let's have you know a 30 minute conversation, see what we can do about it." And and really, it's not. I think I think the hardest part, like for example, um, like looking at adverse childhood effects or uh, what they call uh, PACES now, uh, protective and compensatory um, adverse childhood effects, all the positive things that can happen to a child, which give it the, um, give the child the ability to overcome um, what's thrown at, you know, at their life. Uh, like take the military, for example, we don't do ACEs. We don't do trauma informed practices. Um, in fact, uh, as part of this whole like recruitment issue that they're facing uh, and this whole suicide thing, it's like, look, the only thing we can promise you is that there's a high probability, let's say 70% probability that you're going to commit to join. That, that's really what we're saying. And, and wow. again, I mean, <clears throat> that's why no one's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an advocate or an apologist for the war machine, but what I am saying is that, look, man, you need you need people who are going to be able to you know take up the sword and the spear and then go do what's necessary for this thing called freedom. I mean, 
if we can avoid it, we can avoid it. But you still need it. But that also goes well, into, you know, that, that that also goes into, um, you know, daily life. Like, if you read some of the materials from like 2017, 2018, yeah, roughly 24 million young adults that are too obese, have too low of an IQ, and are too stressed to even take up any type of, you know, work. Um, to me, I mean, how do you fix that? Without addressing maybe our the conditions of living aren't proper, and there's a lot of pre-existing information or data that looks at that. <clears throat> we're just not we're just not connecting it properly. Yeah, a lot of that is um, so. Uh, when when we started before we started recording, I was talking about grammar. Um, and grammar behavior in particular. Um, the example, just because we're recording, I'll say it again. Um, when two people get in a fight, they take you know they take up more space, they get louder, but the amount of unique words they use declines dramatically. Meaning, um, they are making sure that their intentions are crystal clear, understood, uh, and that there is no extra extraneous word to be exchanged to add confusion. So. People will often say that when you're engaged in an act of violence like that, then your limbic system has hijacked your conscious brain. That's bullshit. If that was true, we would not speak in reduced grammar in the moment of conflict. We would speak in more extrapolous stuff. We'd be all over the place because unreason has taken our reason. That's the assumption. But in reality, by reducing our grammar, that's the best thing we can do in a point of conflict. Now, I bring this up because you can measure the grammar changes of behavior across entire populations now. Like I'm, I'm writing code for this right now, where I examine everything and I can measure when your grammar size decreases and when it increases and what that means. So if you wanna measure the impact of a campaign, of a story, of a narrative, of a therapy, you have to understand your ammunition is stories. So you say a story and the story travels through the air, it goes in a person's ears, but how do you know the story had an impact? Changes in their grammar. Meaning they start incorporating the ideas and words from that story into their language. And if you are getting an increase in grammar that corresponds to the words used in the story, then you have had an impact. Transportation and assimilation. Fuck, wow, dude, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I asked my just asked my brother last week. You know, I'm not a really wordy guy. I'm like I said, a rock eater, but um, I'm okay with that. But I asked my brother. He's he listens to podcasts like 24 seven, all different types of stuff. And I was like, do you? I was like, do you feel like listening to podcasts that much? Like, has it has it increased your vocabulary? Like I asked him, he's like 100. percent he said 100%. And he, of course, he listens to stuff he's interested in, which makes him learn things. And he may not even know what the words mean, but the context they're used in, he now knows how to use those words in his own, you know, uh, his own dialogue. So anyway, it's... That's the key. And I'm learning too, talking to Jose. I mean, I, I love talking to people that are more intelligent than I am because um, I learn stuff that I wouldn't know. What kind of what kind of business do you do, Tyler? Um, it's a uh, retail furniture. So okay, 
Yeah, it's a family uh, family business here in somewhat rural North Carolina. Um, a lot of yeah, I never saw myself doing this, but it just it just worked out that way. Um, it was a family business from the get go, from the late late sixties. Um, my mother had worked for the previous uh, gentleman that owned it, and his father. Um, and he was at the retirement age. North Carolina is a huge furniture state anyway. So mm -hmm. these are all, of course, luxury items, but everybody has furniture in their home. So it's not like a luxury car business. So, um, yeah, I, I like it cause I get to deal with all different types of people and, and I really do appreciate that cause it makes me kind of shifts me, you know? I, I deal I deal with situations that are not great and then some very pleasant and it's like it kind of morphs you me know, I get a huge variety in human grammar yeah in your day-to-day -day activities which is absolutely that's actually fascinating um and, and and something that I would actually advocate like if, if you want to understand this go spend a, a couple weeks or a couple months working in in retail of some yeah. sort um and, I'm and a huge really I'm yeah. a huge, I'm a huge, uh, advocate for, and this is in my, you know, in my, my personal, um, relationship and with relationships with friends is clear, concise communication of your expectations. And that's, to me, that's just, that, yeah. that is just overrides everything, right? Because if we all do this or can learn to do this, then there should be no problems as right. long as we're being honest and truthful with each other. Which, if there's no malintent, why would you want to be um, deceitful to someone? And that's it. It's not hard. You know, I speak a lot of times in layman's terms with our with customers, with my wife, with my family members. And it's like, hey, look, I know I come across brash a lot of times, but it's because I want to make this point. And I don't want to convolute anything or, or, you know, make it easy to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not mad. I'm not upset. I just want to drive this point home. And isn't, isn't that interesting that people automatically think a lower grammar is associated with intimidation? That's strange. Well, it might be the energy behind it too, because I'm a very passionate person about things I enjoy. And you know, um, well, think of the inverse where you have a very wordy, superfluous individual who's very exquisite with the speech. I don't. I don't see a threat there right <laughs> no i mean yeah there absolutely is yeah and most of the time you're questioning <laughs> what is this person's intent a person with right person with what's the intention low, low grammar exactly. does low grammar is not um it, it's it, it's intimidating to people that have ulterior motives it's right. not intimidating to people that want to know that you you mean exactly what you're saying um yeah which is no probably doubt. why you are really good with your customers is you don't seem brash you cut to the chase Hey, yeah. this is a quality piece of furniture. We get it yeah. manufactured here. It's made out of this wood. And they walk away knowing exactly the information that they need to make a decision, yes or no. Yep. They're not wondering, like, what the hell did I just experience? <laughs> yeah, and and you could you could ask Jose. I mean, I just asked a question in a private chat that we have with some homies, and I'm just like, man, what is like what makes somebody want to leverage someone else's like intelligence level against them like i'm yeah. smarter than you so now i can i can profit from you right like i i i don't i have a 
I'm very against that type of person like in my life. And I have to be, I think because of like, I have to face the music. I can't sell you something. And then you walk back in a week later, I'm going to answer the door too. You know, I'm going to be in your home delivering it to you too. So I can't you're like I, your community. Yes. I, you're, not, you're, not, you're not, you're, you're not a, you're not a wandering salesman. You, so you I can't, I can't like, I can't have a reputation. Oh, wow. Yeah. You got reputation. Yeah, I can't yeah. be, I'm, I'm along every step of it. And I know we're kind of turning this into, I don't want this to be about me by any means. I, I could care less. No, about this is all, that. this is very relevant to grammar, but yeah, it's but it's very I, relevant to, to everybody else too. Like, like, you know, uh, for, for example, let's, let's, okay. So let's take, take this as a lesson for, how do you how do you deal with your your battle buddy when he's feeling suicidal? Um, you know, let, let's let's literally drive that point home. Be point blank with him. Don't don't leave don't leave it to to doubt a what you're asking. You know, that's one of the reasons why they tell you. You know, are you feeling suicidal? Right. You know, you 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 ask very deliberate questions so that you're perfectly clear and your intent is discovering what their mental state is mm -hmm. and generally speaking they will open up more when you confront them with that you know you're not beating around the bush you know hey i'm not really that interested in finding out but i'm supposed to ask you a whole bunch of words <laughs> uh and you know you can you can kind of nod or shrug or whatever you don't get a shrug response when you're like hey dude are you all right are you you know sit down for a second let's let's have a let's have a conversation about this because you're kind of scaring me you know, that that kind of a response is like, oh, wow, this person's actually interested in, in you're going you're going to get a matching grammar back from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, I'm really not good right, right now. I'm not in a yep. good state. Yep. Um, so being direct in your questioning is is absolutely important because they're going to match your grammar. Um, and, and when you start to when you start to understand this, it, you actually can take control of those situations very easily. Same thing with, uh, you know, Jose, with, with doing what you deal with, with the, the, both kids and parents in the social work, you know, being direct with your kids, not beating around, you know, the bush about like, hey, man, is everything all right at home? Because, you know, you, you kind of got me worried. Like, let's let's sit down and talk about like what's going on right now, because, you you know, your grades are slipping, stuff like that. Let's let's have an honest conversation because I want to figure out how to help you when you communicate. Literally, I want to help you but I need you to explain what the situation is that we're up against. There, there, there is yeah. no misinterpretation of that. That's, yeah. that's part of that trust building is matching, matching grammar. Um, and this goes back to kind of what, where all of this goes to, uh, you know, is how do you, how do you, how do you build communities when, when the world is in entire chaos? Um, it's trust networks. It's, I mean, this is, this is like literally the basis of, of human functioning, uh, communities. Um, you know, this is tribal. This is exactly what it is. It's rapid building of trust, uh, trust-based networks. And it's done. It's not done through words. It's done through grammar, your, your behavior mechanisms. Are you serious about wanting to fix this problem? Yeah. And yeah. once you, once you know that somebody's on board with that, it doesn't matter. Hey, we're going to, we're going to throw ourselves at this problem. We're going to fix it. Yep. Yep. You know, and it, and it works in the opposite direction too. It, but the, but the whole, the whole thing is, is it's, it's not a, you know, um, it's not necessarily uh one, one-to-one -one grammar 
uh, equals violence. Um, it, and I've been thinking about this, Pat. One to one grammar might actually be violence of action, whether it's conflict or working together to solve a problem, because because a one to one match in 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 a third direction mm-hmm. means that you now have a you you now have a team member that you're absolutely able to count on, right? Because your so, grammar is going to match on 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 that level. So um, a a qualifier on that because. Um, the byproduct of social friction is both the combined forces of collaboration and competition. So um, what Nate's talking about is um, the average person knows about 20,000 words. Um, Super smart nerds know around 80,000. And um, when you have more words to describe more reality, you might see more reality. Versus if you have less words, you see, re- you see reality in a good enough manner. It's just, you know, it's good enough, right? So what if I reduced your grammar down to two, right? You only had two words to describe all of reality. It was good or evil, right? Those are the only two words you have, the only two categories you've got. Um, you can still describe reality, and you could probably predict from it. It's completely possible. Um, but you might be missing some details. But the challenge is that because you have such a simplified grammar of two, uh, anybody can use it because it's so simple. Because I see you using it. Well, shit, I'll start using it because it's I've got to memorize two words. How hard can that be? And now because we can use it, um, you now have a bunch of people competing to use that grammar, which causes social friction. But it's not all competition. To Nate's point, uh, it can be collaboration as well. So that social friction uh, is a byproduct of collaboration and uh, competition. But it's also it's also the genocide space, by the way, uh, when you have very low, um, very low grammars, good and evil. We call it polarization, for example, which is fascinating. Like it, like the sociologists still it still hasn't dawned on them that we can create language outputs without grammar. Like it is, that's gonna fucking catch them broadsided. Oh man, like. Mm. All these PhDs are fired. <laughs> like it's over. <laughs> I'm gonna have to post that um, final grammar piece. <clears throat> mm-hmm. In terms of, in terms of like today's climate, so to say. I mean, well, I can't even say that. Depending on what groups that I collaborate mm-hmm. with, I think mm-hmm. there's a general sense that. Um, I can't say uh, specific types of things, so I'm I'm reduced in terms of uh, of I guess where I want to go or what I want to say or how I want to feel or what I can contribute. And so your grammar either goes down or if you're creative, it goes up. So when when we get censored, when the four channels get censored, we say we can't say the bad word. We come up with just a hilarious alternative to it, which is usually much more wordy, but even funnier. Um, or most people, it's just like, oh, I don't want to say anything even associated with that word. And then they just kind of go run off into the cover. Do, do but it's a think, grammar reduction. It's a grammar reduction tactic. That's right. Do you think, I'd like, like, like to ask this. What, what do you think is the trajectory of platforms I mean, like, just like at some point, are they going to collapse? Are they going to evolve? Social I mean, media? 
Yeah, social media. Just social. I've I've hated social media the day I saw it. <laughs> I was like, this this is not going to end well. This is a casino for attention. Um, the very worst instincts of mankind are going to get accelerated and then normalized. Sure enough, all that shit happened. All because of the way of the UX. The way that the UX is designed is what accelerates all this stuff. So um, social media platforms, um, they were fun and novel when humanity was like, holy shit, I can talk to my fellow man across the planet for the first time. Holy shit, this is great. That novelty is worn off. We're done with that. Like we're, We've had enough of each other. We're pretty, we're good. Thanks. So I, I think, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think that selling points over for uh, social media. And I think now it's about trust networks and that's going to be the, the model moving forward. Yeah. I think you're actually going to see an emergence of like um, private social, uh, yeah. private social media. Um, yeah. You know, churches having their own social media site that's self-hosted. Um, you know, it's it, well. I mean, it's a it, it, it's really not far different than a than the old BBCs or the you know your your old forum postings where your people with similar interests get on. But I think you're going to see it kind of reorient to like communities. You're not necessarily people. It, it's going to be a hybrid between the two, the, yeah. between the specialization and the generalization. So you're going to have. Uh you're going to have institutions or small level institutions hosting their own social networks. <clears throat> I usually don't like to speak in ideals um, and I'm always quick to shoot down my own, but I ideally you're going to have people who have functional communities, not just merely, like I said, that there's that parasocial that keeps reforming in the ether. Always, always, um, you're going to have to put stable footing on that ether, on that parasocial foundation and go, okay, who can I trust for commerce in this network? Who can I trust to bake my bread? Who can I trust to be the doctor? Who can I trust to be the seer? Who can I trust, right? You're rebuilding a tribe, um, one potential interaction at a time until you establish something that's consistent. Uh, and that's what crypto was trying to do. Crypto was trying to be a trusted social media. That's basically what it is. It's saying, okay, well, you give me this and I'll give you this in return. Ta-da. You know, why would Sam you put money? That. What's that? <laughs> I said Sam ruined that. Sam ruined them. Sam uh Sam took the Sam took the social media approach to um to uh, uh to crypto. Um he tried to make it bigger and better and flashier and brighter and all this stuff. Well, that's if you read the white paper on, on Bitcoin, that's not the goal. The goal of Bitcoin is to be a community coin it's, it's not meant to be a global replacement fund for for visa transactions like what the fuck no no it's, it's designed to be like this community has this coin it keeps track of its ledgers for its interests and then when it wants to interact with someone else it can do that too so so I, ideally we have these parasocial foundations conducting trust operations with one another who opt in and opt out, they volunteer into it because you can, it's the internet. I don't have to necessarily deal with this group. It's not like, it's not like, it's not like Germany in the 1500s where it's illegal for me to leave the country uh, or even illegal for me to leave my little fiefdom, my little homestead. Um, I can opt out of any community. And, and when you do that, when you have a parasocial foundation, only the volunteer network organizes meaning the organization 
everybody agrees to their place within their respective network. It's all volunteered in. This was the dream that the, the like the libertarian internet that was sold to me. This was it, right? Um, and the ability to organize along those lines is always available. We can do this at any given time. It's not hard. Um, it's just that somebody decided to play attention casino for the last 20 years. So eventually all the advertisers are going to have to change. Um, I think they're going to get consolidated because of AI. I think we're going to go from advertisers to straight up auto cults next. Uh, I don't know. See what happens. Yeah, we'll just keep you guys on speed dial, man. I mean, <laughs> sweet, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, wait, wait, wait till your audience finds out about auto cults. <laughs> oh man, good yeah. luck. That's a nightmare fuel. No, that's it. That's a gift. That's a nightmare right fuel. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and teach people how to do auto cults, but we're only teaching Marines first. Only Marines first. Yeah, we, the, that the, sounds the, like a bad idea, and I don't even know what you're talking about. But the, the so. cult of the crayon. Every, every every Marine will be chesty polar. Damn. Next level. Savage. Yeah, we're making Sodacar <laughs> over here. That's what we're doing. Yep. <laughs> exactly what it is <laughs> but i'm buying stock in crayons so it makes sense <laughs> i think, uh, I think as, as, as a follow-on caveat real quick i need to i need to reinforce to your to your audience jose that i too was a marine yeah i think right. we all picked we all picked that up yeah i just want i just want to make sure somebody's not out there being like oh my god this guy let me meet him on the street <laughs> i'm i'm just a civvy for clarification yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> no, thank you, thank you for your uh, yeah. both of you. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this has been kind of crazy for me and Jose. We were texting about. It. I was like, dude, I feel like, like what the fuck happened. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. No, no, no. no, it's no. Not, it I wasn't. Like, it I wasn't like going bad. To fucking school, man. It I like going bad. to school. You you peel um, yeah you you you, you peeled the wool back a little bit, I th I think. But no, it's you know, I, I tore the bandaid off is what I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's the state of civilization right now. Oh no! <laughs> wow. Did um did did Nate uh uh um did he mention to y'all the ability to use ChatGPT to fill out VA forms? No. No, but oh, if you could do that for anyone form. listening, you know. Use chat GPT to give a counter argument to a VA claim denial. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, hey, chat GPT, <laughs> my, my, the following claim was denied for this reason. Please give me a counter argument. Yep. Anybody listening, you should be doing that. You should be doing Wait, that I feel like right we now. Need to pause, pause, pause. <laughs> We're about to defund the VA. I <laughs> oh, no. So, so. This is the ultimate insurgency tactic. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not an insurgency tactic. This is so you have again human gatekeepers, right? That base their decision making process off of mood, and not actual uh, what what the parameters should be. Um, and I know this for a fact. So when I first got out of the Marine Corps, this was back in ninety eight, ninety nine. Um, I 
moved back to Missouri and tried to get a hold of the tried to get a hold of the VA to you know set up my claim. And at that point in time, it was all either done over done over the phone or you actually went into you know one of the the VA hospitals and filled out paperwork. And I was like, well, I don't really feel like you know going to the VA hospital just to fill out paperwork. Um, and I found the the state VA rep uh, was actually walking somewhere on, on campus at central Missouri state. <clears throat> and, uh, was, I, I don't even remember how I met him, but I met him and he's like, Oh, stop by my office over here. Uh, when you get a chance to this week and I'll walk you through the process on it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So while I'm sitting there talking to him, he's like, yeah, man, he goes, I, I got involved in this job after I got out. I think it was a Navy veteran. He goes, I went to went to St. Louis because I had just taken a job with the VA in St. Louis in the claims department. And we were getting our briefing on how the claims process works. And he's like, so, you know, I'm, I'm new to this job. And I asked the, the lady that I'm watching fill out the claims. So what is the decision-making process? You seem like you're, you know, I, I take it, you know what you're doing by reading through this stuff. She's like, no, it really just depends on what mood I'm in. Mm. And he's like, what and she's like yeah she goes it depends on what mood i'm in whether i approve her claim or not and he's oh, like wow got it quit the job there and went to work for the state va as an advocate against the the va wow because he's like he goes that is that is intolerable that that this the the basis for the decision making process is what mood i'm in yeah, that's some power trip and uh, behavior. Yeah, right but that's but that's what happens. You know, I mean, that is literally the definition of bureaucracy: is justice is carried out, carried out based on mood. Mm. You know, it's that's the that's not contract law. That's not what you know. We sign contracts. Contracts are legal instruments. Those legal instruments are there to ensure that. You know, hey, I'm going to perform to this uh, degree yeah. on my end of the bargain. You're going to perform to your degree on on this end of the bargain, and that contract is there as a trust instrument. And now you have this this dynamic where whether it's actually fulfilled is based off of somebody's mood. Completely undermines the trust. If the military wants to fix its accession rates, it probably needs to take a look at the way that the VA does business and the way that the military does business. Because you have a large population of veterans out there talking to people about, yeah, my experience really wasn't that great after I got out. What what does the military have to, to sell you on now? Nothing. You know, we haven't we haven't yeah, exactly. You know, you're you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna go in, you we know there's a high chance of getting deployed somewhere. Is you know, and you know, the question isn't is it worth defending our country? We're not defending our country. Why why are we going to these places? Especially if it's not actually having an impact. This is why they need to hire Pat to spin up some marketing, man. Where are the dragon commercials at? No, you actually, what we need is we need to go to robot armies. Robotic nationalism. That's yep. where we need to go. Because that's how you get those people who won't pass the PT test to control like 100 drones <laughs> at a time. Their lethality is completely intact. Yeah, if not better, because all they could do was play video games. But that's not. And, and also, I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking that as a skill set. 
but when we were when we were in Afghanistan, they had they had guys out of Florida flying the Reaper drones, and they're filing they're filing PTSD claims for dropping you know J yeah. and whatever else on you know. Well, yeah, their uh, their kill streak is so irrational that they're. Uh... That's yeah, actually affecting their psychology. Yeah, yeah I've, they, I've known a couple of those drone pilots. Have you? Yeah, they clock yeah. out and go to KFC and then, you know, watch Netflix or whatever after they just murk the whole family or whatnot. Yeah. But it, it mean, either catches up or they're just psychopaths. It's one of the two. Damn. Yeah. I've seen the psychopaths. It's Tell them to come like, chat with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I had a bad business deal with one. So okay, maybe, well, maybe later. <laughs> All right. But he was, uh, he was just like, God, I remember I was working for a civilian drone company. I was the head tech over there, and I was working for a guy who just got out of FedMax prison. He sold 700 pounds of drugs through and shipped it through FedEx in the 90s or something like that. Didn't snitch on anybody, came out of jail, had a bunch of money, and then he started up a drone company. My name got brought up, so I go in. And he's looking into... Uh, all these people in the military space doing drones and stuff like that. And so we get this one guy, he's a, a pretty sure is pretty sure a Reaper pilot. Um, first question he asks us, it's just me, the guy who spent 20, like 10 years in FedMax and this pilot and the pilot just looks at the, looks at the criminal guys. Like, so how many people have you killed? And I'm just like, Oh my God. <laughs> This is not a good start to a business relationship. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> it really wasn't. But yeah, these uh they, they uh, it's supposed to feel like a video game, but I, I hear stories where in some cases it's not. People really walk out fucked up. Mm. Yeah, it's gotta be a weird experience, you know. Cause it's cause it's real. I mean it's really happening. It's not a video game. Yeah, especially when, especially when you see the uh, the after effects on the news. Yeah, that's especially a, that's the narrative leaks. side of the after effects. Yeah, that you know, that's only told, that's all. It's one thing target wise, or you're not even told what the target is, and then you see on CNN that you know you just carpet bombed a, a funeral or a wedding or something like that. And that's the other thing. The um, the insurgents will often gather in civilian targets like that, and so then it's just like ah fuck. Yeah. Yep. That's war, I guess. Um Yep. But it uh, doesn't have to be like that. We can actually uh transition to something a little bit more like NASCAR. Yeah, that'd be ideal. Ideally murder murder bots, right? Or what it was. Robots shooting yeah. humans should be a war crime. Robots killing robots, that should be the way of the world. That should be it's the an future. industry. Yep. It's an industry. And then nations are forced to build their own robots just to stay afloat or they're going to get invaded. And now they have modern economies now because they have to build their own stuff. And by the way, they don't need Taiwanese chips to do it. We're about to cross that barrier very soon. So if we're just fighting robots, we should be able to bet on it, right? That's right. Yep. All right. I'm in then. <laughs> wow. Just like that. And now you have all this competition all over the place. Yeah, so and when it's all said right. and done... You have all these robots that are sitting around. They used to be soldiers, but now they're labor. But there's so many of them that you won't – again, we're not replacing the Walmart creator. We're not replacing the deli worker. We're going to put them into places where humans can't do the work. That's space. Hmm. 
You guys all need to get together and write a book, I think, man. Pat, Pat, do, it. <laughs> Pat do you think there's enough um, natural resources uh, to build enough microchips for that right now? Oh, yeah. I've seen drones made of potatoes. Wow. Literally. Yeah. Dang. You, just, you can compress the starch, add a little bit extra drying to it. You have a hole. And the chips that I'm talking about, same technology from the 70s. I don't even need microprocessors. Yeah, yeah real, yeah. real simple stuff, dude. Like people are worried about the cyber surface. When, when China decides to really just kick it to Taiwan and the rest of the world is forced to adapt, we're not going to be playing this five nanometer space anymore. That shit's over. We're going back to analog chips. And you can use ChatGPT to teach yourself logarithmic math. <laughs> That's true. That's actually really true. I've already been playing with it. Yeah. Yeah, you should definitely, if you're not, um, you see if you can use um, ChatGPT to reverse engineer what, um, uh, yeah. what's the fuck we're doing? What the fuck were they doing? Mythic? The, NAN, the yeah, Mythic dudes. If you just like NAND gates, like NAND gates, in my opinion, are still kind of meh. Like, just like basic logarithmic computation with voltage alone. That's all you need. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and it's just like, you don't need crazy shit. You need like a resistor and a wire and you're good. So yep. fuck. Like when I have spare circuits, I intend to jump very heavily into that. Yeah. Well, keep us posted, man. I mean, I'm interested. Yeah. It's going to be a wild future, man. For sure. Hey, hey um, Pat, Nate, if uh if i'm able to leverage uh some folks for uh a panel would you be willing to come on sure that might be um, fun and yeah, just like a q a type thing for anybody that's concerned or you know wants to